Hey everybody, this is Lev here. I'm all by myself this time. Um, I wanted to give a brief introduction to this episode. Basically, we are on a little holiday this episode. Don't worry, we will be back to normal after this, but even podcasters need holidays from time to time. And I thought I'd take this opportunity to celebrate the fact that as a podcast, we have reached 10,000 all-time plays. In fact, we're now well over 10,000 by the time you listen to this. We may be approaching 11,000. So, Yay us. Um, thank you to everybody who has listened to the show. Thank you everyone who has interacted with us, followed us on Instagram and Twitter. You've been amazing. Your support means the world to us. We have so much fun, myself and Derek, doing this show. But unfortunately, we need a holiday. And as a result of that, I thought what I'd do is I'd present you with a, a Greatest Hits episode with Four segments featuring some of our greatest idiots ever, including our very first idiot right now. The worst human in history, I think it's fair to say, Thomas Midgley Jr., who Derek will tell you about right now. All right. My idiot this week is an inventor from America. Okay. Now, you know, many inventions throughout history have shaped our modern world, and, and some of them have led to some great advancements in the quality of life of all humankind. Absolutely. But, uh, some of them, not so much. Okay. The gentleman inventor I present today falls more towards the not-so-much side of things. Okay. He was born in May of 1889 in Beaver Falls, Pennsylvania. Yeah, a that's family. a Pennsylvania name right there. <laughs> Holy shit. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, definitely. But his family did have a history of invention, and his father was a notable inventor in the field of automobile tires. Oh, cool. Right. His grandfather was a inventor that that created the inserted tooth saw. Oh, that sounds terrifying. Yeah, tires and saws, they go (laughs) so well together. (laughs) It's No. no surprise that he'd go on to be an inventor himself. Of course. And... Though born in Beaver Falls, he grew up in Columbus, which is good for me because if I had to say Beaver Falls a couple more times, I'd be giggling like a (laughs) schoolgirl. He graduated with a degree in mechanical engineering from Cornell University in 1911, which a smart move for somebody that wants to be an inventor, right? Absolutely, yeah. That's a smart move going to, what was it, sorry, Cornell, did you say? Yes, he went to Cornell for mechanical engineering. Okay, so he went to the same... University is Andy Bernard in the office. Okay, cool. That's that's good. He's got a good start, you know, a reputable university, and, you know, he's graduated with a very good degree, so clearly this guy has got some ability or talent. Right. Starting out in good position. He, following his graduation, he goes back home and works as a draftsman and designer for the National Cash Register Company, which mm. was the first company to create a electric cash register oh wow okay that's a but, big achievement right it wasn't his invention though it no, was okay. uh charles kettering who oh. is a another inventor and chemist and mechanical engineer that he'll go on to work with during his first disastrous invention because he's got a, a couple inventions that not so good okay i can't wait to hear what they are um When Kettering hired him on as a mechanical engineer and chemist to the research team of Dayton Engineering Laboratories, uh, that was the research arm of General Motors or the Chevy-type vehicles here. Yeah, big company, Um, General Motors, my God. 
And and Kettering at the same time as being on the research team is marketing a small high compression kerosene engine that was used to drive uh, home lighting systems on farms. Okay. But the engine that he was uh, marketing just knocked terribly. Oh wow! Really? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's a high compression, high sure. uh, high burning, high temperature burning fuel. Right. So it gets that ping, 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 knock, knock, knock sound. Ugh, and yeah. our guy, being the go-getter that he was, he set out to find a solution. Okay. And he discovered that the knocking was caused by the uneven burning of fuel mixture and kind of made a guess that I'm going to dye the fuel red because that'll absorb more heat and it'll make it knock less. Okay. Terrible physics, but <laughs> as luck would have it, he added ethyl iodine to the kerosene, and there was less knock. Okay. So he continued his work towards finding a better solution until he was interrupted by a war and went to oh. do research for the U.S. war effort during World War One. Okay, well, that happens. You know, people feel the need to kind of contribute to the war effort and stuff. You know, I understand that. That's fine. So, so far, this guy isn't too bad, you know? Um, so I'm, I'm interested to see where things start to go downhill. That's on its way. But during the war, <laughs> he researched and developed um, improved aviation fuel by hydrogenating benzene. Benzene. Ooh, okay. Man, I am bad at some of these words. So That's okay. Have to forgive me on that. That's fine. Um, it was his work with those fuels that made him a pioneer in the study of internal combustion engines, okay. which guided him to the discovery that would become his first dangerous and discover, uh, destructive invention. After the war, he focused his efforts back on solving the problem of engine knock because it was obviously driving him nuts. That's his life's work, is it? His raison d'etre. I've got to stop these engines knocking. Yeah. <laughs> so he figured with his success from the original additive to the kerosene engine and then the additives to the fuel for the the planes during the war, he would uh, make an additive that he could put into the fuel that would fix it. Okay. And he proceeded to do, do a ton of hit-and-miss research that did nothing. All right. Uh, no real success at all. So he began systematically working on uh, the periodic table until he discovered tetraethyl lead. Okay. Uh, and it worked pretty well at quieting the knock. Right. In, in 1921, him and his team found that the tetraethyl lead uh, at the right levels completely eliminated the engine knock. Oh, but wow. formed really harmful deposits in the engine. Okay, right. So you've got a trade-off there, which is obviously not exactly S ideal. Now he had a new problem to solve, right? <laughs> <laughs> and and he did so by uh, adding an additive to his additive. Okay. Um, this is, what is it, bromine. Bromine. Uh, it was... Ethylene bromine was okay. a compound that was added to the lead and allowed it to be completely expelled from the engine in the exhaust. Oh, dear. I think I know where this is going. Yeah, the the <clears throat> toxic uh, effects of lead were well known at the time. Yes. And at one point in time, he even had to withdraw from his research uh, to recover from lead poisoning. Jesus. Okay. And you'd think that would deter him from going forward with his invention. Yeah, but there's a it, lesson there, isn't there? Yeah. <laughs> you would hope that, that he would learn the lesson, and, and he did mm. not. Okay. Because he goes on to become the vice president of the Ethel Gasoline Company. Okay. And he started to promote his new leaded gasoline oh, to the public. No. And he, he, he named it Ethel, <laughs> Ethylene, so he could avoid uh, any mention of lead in lead. the reports. 
yeah. or advertising. Of course. <clears throat> and he was successful in kind of hiding how dangerous it could be because in 1922, the American Chemical Society awarded him the Nichols Medal for the uh, use of anti-knock compounds in motor fuels. Because wow. he convinced everybody, including himself, that uh, what he did was... Uh, safe and not going to post a threat to public health at all, but he was so, so wrong. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, boy, was he wrong. My God. Turns out the use of leaded gasoline that he invented released large quantities of lead into the atmosphere all over the world. Yes. And that high atmospheric lead level has been linked to some serious long-term health problems like neurological impairment. Exactly. And kids. And uh, was it... They even linked it to uh, violence and criminality in the cities, which is super bad stuff. Yeah, that's <laughs> really bad. If you're changing the psychological makeup of entire cities, then yeah, that's really bad. Yeah, he didn't stop there with the lead uh, poisoning in the atmosphere, though. He had another invention in him. Okay. He went back to, <laughs> went back to his trusty periodic table to... Oh, no create a more silent but deadly solution to the dangerous refrigerants of the time. Oh, no. Yeah, the existing refrigerants used compounds that were flammable and toxic, or both, yeah. but he found a way to synthesize a colorless gas called dichlorodifluoromethane. Okay. Which is super ridiculously hard to say, so I'm not going to say it again. It was... <laughs> Uh, we can call the, the compound or something. Freon oh, no. is, is what they, they, they made, and it was used as a refrigerant, but it was also used for uh, aerosol spray propellants and things yep. like hairspray and asthma inhalers, because it wasn't toxic, Air conditioning you know? as well? Isn't Freon in air conditioning or something? Or was yep. it? Yeah. Yep. Um, and uh, they were thought to be safe. Oh, no. At the time, and non-toxic, but the mixture known as CFCs oh my God. was dis discovered in 1974 to uh, be destroying the ozone layer. Oh my God! Which in turn leads to the reduced natural protection from UV rays and skin cancer and all that good Planet stuff. Planet death. Yep, the survival of the Earth as a whole was put in in jeopardy through his inventions and the wow. extensive use of his compounds. Wow! And uh, he he had one more invention in him. What could he? What is it? Is it like a leaking atomic bomb at this point? What is this? Yeah, he's killed the planet so far. <laughs> his uh, his last invention is going to just prove deadly to himself. Oh, thank God. Uh, I so, shouldn't say that, but bloody hell. <laughs> I mean, it's better him than us. At this point, yeah, think. because God knows who he's <laughs> taking with him, you know? God. So, so many, I think, over yeah. the years. He's still taking people with him. Exactly. But later in life, he contracted polio and was severely disabled and didn't have use of his legs. Okay. So his last invention was to help with his mobility, and he devised an elaborate system of ropes and pulleys to help lift him out of the bed. Okay. I mean, th this is like Rube Goldberg kind of levels of, I'm going to make a yeah, contraption to help me get around. Turning himself into a marionette. Basically, he's his essentially. own puppet master, essentially, yeah. <laughs> In 1944, while trying to use his device, he became entangled and dies of strangulation. Wow. Okay. So. I mean, got, uh, did he or did he just invent, like, autoerotic asphyxiation? Is that what he did? <laughs> did he invent the way that ended up killing David Carradine? Is that what he did? The old stroke and choke? Is that what he invented? By his bed with his pants around his ankles, I suppose. That might have <laughs> yeah, been Oh, it. he accidentally hung himself. No, he didn't. 
There was no accident about this. Wow. But at least he was done killing the rest of the world. Fuck and, yes. And uh, this guy uh, has been noted as uh, being called, and I quote, uh, having more impact on the atmosphere than any other single organism in Earth's history. Yeah. And having an almost instinct for the regrettable that was almost uncanny. Yes, I would agree. He was, he was an American inventor, mechanical engineer, chemist, and destroyer of worlds, <laughs> trying to do good and solve problems with extremely unfortunate results. Wow. A man named Thomas Midgley Jr., whose inventions landed on Time's, Time Magazine's list of the 50 worst inventions of all time, and yep. in my opinion, puts him in strong running for uh, one of history's greatest idiots. I mean, oh, that's breathtaking. I mean, we've we've heard of people that, like John, cost the lives of hundreds of thousands of his countrymen, or um, the guy who let Genghis Khan get super angry at his population and wipe out like over a million people. But this is like, we're talking generations of destruction with this guy. You know, he invented, real staying power. Uh, yeah, real like legacy idiocy from this guy. It's, it's, it's frightening to think how many people are dead or mutilated or disabled as a result of the inventions that, or, or the kind of discoveries and combinations that this guy came up with. It's interesting, when you were talking about um, the lead, first of all, my, my first thought is, the world's known about lead poisoning because Roman emperors were notoriously mad, not because they were inbred, like the British aristocracy, but... <laughs> <laughs> but because they all drank from wine that was brewed in giant lead um, containers. So they got the lead infused with the wine, and that's why you've got an emperor, you know, fiddling while the city burns around him, or if that's even true. But that's why the majority of Roman emperors were mad. It's because all of the wine they drank was full of lead. So, uh, just, And that's why the common folk weren't. Because they couldn't afford the expensive wine, so they just drank, drank like cheap plonk, you know, that wasn't full of lead. So that's amazing. In terms of scoring, the guy that created CFCs and has opened a hole in the atmosphere and also led to the lead poisoning of multiple generations, he's got to be a yeah. 90, right? <gasps> he's got to be oh. 90. This guy, and I, I would love to know if, if we ever get a following and there are any statisticians out there who know about these things, I would love to know the cumulative total of damage that this guy has done to the planet in terms of either deaths or catastrophic environmental disasters, because we've this is a single person that is responsible potentially for the deaths of hundreds of millions of people. That well, is do frightening. Do you count the deaths from increased violence and criminality yeah. from the lead poisoning? That's frightening. So you add to that too, of not just you know people dying from skin cancer from the hole in the ozone layer, exactly, and the environmental damage that causes. <laughs> it's it's amazing so. amazing to think that one human being can have this kind of effect and the interesting thing he managed to trick a bunch of like boards and scientists into seeing him as some sort of great inventor some sort of great leader how did he get surely there must have been people around him who would have been like you've put lead in the atmosphere we know this is bad yet somehow he ends up as vice president of General Motors or wh whichever uh, company was the, that was. Yeah, the ethyl gasoline company. But oh wh what he did was the the use of bromine to break it down so that it comes out into the the exhaust. 
he was selling it as it, the particles are far too small to even be dangerous. He he put a bottle of leaded gasoline under his nose and kept it there for 60 seconds and was saying, see, it's not harmful. And I imagine that's how he got lead poisoning at, at that one point. But um, he, he tricked him by just saying that the particles are going to be too small for us to absorb or do anything. Wow. And somehow they they fell for it. I mean, they, they hadn't looked at, you know, mercury and fish accumulating over time. And lead doing, being a metal doing the same thing. Oh, that is, and and the the damage it's done to the water systems in America and the water table and the food table and, oh my God, other than the creator of plastics, I can't think of anyone else who has had this kind of environmental impact on the planet, just the one person. That's really frightening. I mean, we talk about leaders of industry who need to do more to protect the environment. This guy invented the problems, more or less. Yep. Um, That's frightening. I'm, I'm... totally comfortable in giving this guy a 90 and making him the leader because there's i mean i can't think of too many people in the world and definitely the history of the planet that are ever going to get anywhere close to this guy in terms of absolute stupidity and or in his case willful ignorance um because he knew that it was dangerous turns out though well (laughs) (laughs) now it's time for the second segment of this special edition podcast this is one of our favourite ever idiots, and certainly one of the audience's favourite ever idiots. This is Rick James. James Ambrose Johnson Jr., which is the last time you'll ever hear me refer to him as that, (laughs) was born on February the 1st, 1948, in Buffalo, New York, to Mabel, niece Sims, and James Ambrose Johnson Sr. He was one of eight children. Holy shit. Um, Yeah, that's a big fucking family. Uh, James's father, an auto worker, left the family when James was 10. His mother was a dancer for Catherine Dunham and later worked as a numbers runner to earn a living. You're going to have to tell me what a numbers runner is. I'm not entirely sure what that is. It's like like... a bookie. Oh, she's a bookie. Oh, they say. It's like the the numbers game is like a lottery thing. Right. Okay. So this, this is not a good start for him. His dad's left at 10. He's one of eight kids, and his mum is now essentially involved in organised crime. This is this is not a good start. Um, <laughs> James's mother would take him on her collecting route, and it was in bars where she worked that James saw performers such as John Coltrane, Miles Davis, and Etta James perform. That nice. nice. That is an eye-opening experience for someone who is young, and they're like, "Oh my god." I am surrounded by people who are musical gods, you know, or, yeah. or super talented. That is kind of amazing. James claimed later, and this is where it all starts to go wrong, in the biography <laughs> Glow, which is awesome, uh, this is really sad, that he lost his virginity at age 9 or 10 to a 14-year-old local girl claiming his kinky nature came in early. Now, that's... He was say he was basically um, abused at that age. So what you've now got is a kid who is nine or ten, who has lost his dad, who is working with his mother in an organised crime underworld setting where he's surrounded by brilliant musicians, but is exposed to sexualisation at an incredibly young age. This I, ain't a recipe. Kind of jealous though, a little bit though. I mean, it's kind of wild, but still, it's like, yeah, it's <sighs> rough. Yeah, yeah. but. We're about hell of a story. <laughs> it's a hell of a story, and it only gets more insane from there. 
Um, James eventually attended Orchard Park High School and Bennett High School prior to dropping out. No surprise there. James was introduced to drugs at an early age and was busted for burglary as a young teen. So, again, we can see the rails coming off here. Due to his stints in jail for theft, James entered the United States Navy Reserve at 14 or 15, lying about his age to avoid the draft. Whoa, okay. Yeah. Dude, just <laughs> fucking he can't stop. During that Jeez. time, he also became a drummer for a local ja- for local jazz groups in the New York City area. Due to him missing his twice monthly reserve sessions aboard the USS Enterprise. No kidding. Yeah, he beat Kirk to it. He was there before <laughs> Kirk. <laughs> um, he found himself ordered to Vietnam. Oof, 1964. Uh-oh. This is. That is not a good time to be in Vietnam. You want to do it when George Bush did it in 1981, when there's fuck all happening. Um, Yeah. (laughs) And so, obviously, uh, because it's Rick James, bitch, he, in 1964, he fled to Toronto. Um, Sooner after... (laughs) This fucking story. That's right outside of Buffalo. I know, yeah. He was just like, (laughs) I'm just going to jump across the bay, bitch. Um, sooner after his arrival, three drunk men tried to attack him outside a club. A trio of men uh, came to his aid. One of those men was Levon Helm, who at the time was an undiscovered member of Ronnie Hawkins' backing band. Um, here's the first time that fate has intervened on Rick James's part, because it sure as fuck won't be the last time, and it certainly isn't the most shocking time either. Um, okay. Levon Holm, Helm, sorry, invited James to their show later that night, and he ended up performing on stage with them. In Toronto, James made friends with local musicians Neil Young and Joni Mitchell. Well, how about that? <laughs> this, so again, this knows everybody. I know he's like sixteen, and he's already met like Etta James, Miles Davis, John Coltrane, uh, Neil Young, Joni Mitchell. It, it, it's kind of amazing. He's surrounded by yeah. tragedy and amazing musicians his entire life. It just yeah. doesn't happen to I, anyone else except Rick James. Um, see, it was Neil Young that got him onto drugs, I bet. Uh, yeah, well, we'll get to that. <laughs> Holy shit. Well, no, he he was already doing weed at this oh, yeah, point, yeah, yeah, but okay. like the harder shit came, came much later on. Cocaine is a hell of a drug. Um, to avoid... <laughs> being caught by military authorities James went under the assumed name Ricky James Matthews that same year James formed the Minor Birds a band that produced a fusion of soul folk and rock music so kind of similar to what he ended up doing uh, when he became really famous right Um, In 1965, the band briefly recorded for the Canadian division of Columbia Records, releasing the single Minor Bird Hop and Minor Bird Song. At one point, Nick St. Nicholas of later Steppenwolf fame was a member. Um, Holy crap! Steppenwolf, yeah, Steppenwolf. (laughs) Uh, Eventually, bassist Bruce Palmer replaced him by the time the Minor Bird Hop was recorded. James and Palmer recruited uh, guitarist Tom Morgan and Xavier Taylor and drummer Rick Mason to form a new Minor Birds lineup and soon travelled to Detroit to record with Motown. Hooray! Dude, he's, he's just rocking and rolling. He is. Uh, he is the embodiment of rock and roll. I think at this point, pretty <laughs> much. Um, before the group began uh, began recording their first uh, songs for the label, Morgan left unhappy about the label's attitude towards the musicians. Neil Young eventually took his place, 
And it was while in Detroit that James met his musical heroes, Marvin Gaye and Stevie Wonder. Fucking hell, this guy. Whoa. I know. He is surrounded by some of the greatest names of all amazing. time. Amazing. It's kind of amazing. After meeting Stevie Wonder um, and telling him his name, Wonder felt the name Ricky James Matthews was too long and instead told James to shorten it to Ricky James, although he left out the bitch part. So there's that. <laughs> <laughs> in 1966, a financial dispute in Toronto between James and the Minor Birds handler Morley Shellman yeah, led to Motown learning of James's fugitive status with the Navy. So Shellman basically sold him out. What a piece of shit. Um, <laughs> hoping to present, prevent any scrutiny, Motown executives told James they would not be uh, releasing any more of his materials and convinced him to come back and work with them after straightening out his legal issues. James surrendered himself to the FBI and in May 1966 was sentenced by the Navy to five months hard labour for unauthorised absence. That's kind of a light damn. sentence. Yeah, goddamn. But then again, you know, who wants to go to fucking Vietnam? Um, right. Well, I'll take hard labor over Vietnam. Fucking yeah. What, yes, I will take that shit. Um, <laughs> he was not yet 19 years old, and he'd already been through all of this, which fucking hell. James escaped from the Brooklyn Naval Brig after only six weeks confinement, but following oh, another man. six months as a fugitive, surrendered himself for a second time, 19, and he's already a fucking lunatic. Uh, <laughs> with help from his mother, James found legal assistance from his cousin, future congressman Louis Stokes. This guy is connected to everyone wow. in history. His his bacon number must be the smallest there is possible. I, I can't believe it. Um, another attorney, former Marine Captain John Brackman, who pled James's second court uh, martial down from a potential five years hard labor to five months. So he just ended up with the five months again, basically. After his release from Portsmouth Naval Prison in August 1967, James returned to Toronto and endured another detention, initially derailing resumption of his career with the Minor Bird Band, Neil Merriweather, with whom he would later collaborate first at Motown and then later in Los Angeles. In 1968, again working under the pseudonym Ricky Matthews, James produced and wrote songs at Motown for acts such as The Miracles, Bobby Taylor and the Vancouver's, and The Spinners. Uh, I, those are kind of lesser-known names, but still, the guy's yeah. working. I'm really happy that he's working at this point, and if he could have stayed as a kind of a songwriter to the stars, he'd have probably been fine, but that wasn't the road yeah. that he went down. It's not no. the road at all. <laughs> According to James, he briefly got in... Oh, God, here we go. According to James, he briefly got involved in pimp activity during this time, <laughs> but stopped because he felt he was not qualified for it due to the harsh activity and the abuse of women there. I repeat, Rick okay. James felt unqualified to be a pimp. <laughs> that is the weirdest fucking statement I've ever had to read. Ah, uh, yeah. Well, <laughs> I can't get over. It. I can't get over how insane this man's life is. Fuck. Yeah, it was during this third stint at Motown that James met musician Greg Reeves. Reeves, hoping to find a better situation than the uh, thirty-eight dollars a week, which is actually six hundred and fifty dollars in twenty twenty-one dollars, so he wasn't doing too badly. Um, he was earning as a session <laughs> bassist. That's not bad, dude. What's wrong with you? No. He was working as a session bassist for Barry Gordy. 
Um, he joined James uh, looking to hitch a lift from Neil Young's rising star and relocated to Los Angeles along with James. On one of the first nights in Los Angeles, James was crashing, crashing on musician Stephen Stills' couch. So... Uh-huh. Okay, well, that makes sense. Yeah, of course. Uh, when he woke, he saw a stoned young man sitting on the floor in the lotus position. The man's wrists were bleeding, so a scared oh, James sought help. James was later formally introduced to the man, who was, in fact, Jim Morrison, lead singer of The Doors. Holy crap. <laughs> you wake up and Jim Morrison's sitting in the lotus position, fucking blood dripping from his wrists. Um, what the hell? I know. It's <laughs> fucking insane. After the doors opened for Buffalo Springfield at Whiskey A Go-Go, Morrison tricked James into taking acid. Fuck you, Jim Morrison. <laughs> Here, eat this stamp. Eat this. I don't know why. <laughs> I, I promise it'll be helpful. Rick James didn't need any help being crazy in his life, so no. Jim Morrison could get fucked for that. That was a terrible thing to do. In California, James initially worked as a duo with Greg Reeves, but soon after James introduced Reeves to Neil Young, it was Reeves, not James, who was hired as bassist for the newly formed rock supergroup Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young. So, Uh yeah, kind of got fucked a little bit there as well, which which wouldn't have helped his his kind of personality one bit. Uh, Around this time, James formed several versions of the rock and roll band uh, Salt and Pepper, not the rap group from the 80s, and got involved with hairstylist Jay Seberg, who agreed to invest in his music. James claimed that in 1969, Seberg invited him to attend a party at actress Sharon Tate's house. Get out of here. I'm not fucking kidding. But he was too hungover to get out of bed. The next morning... Fucking him. Yeah. The next morning, <laughs> he discovered that Seberg had been murdered, and he saw the Los Angeles headline, Sharon Tate, four others murdered. First of all, that's the second time that fate has intervened in Rick James's behalf, and uh, boy, did it do him a favour there. Although I do feel that if the Manson family had showed up to Sharon Tate's house and they'd met Rick James, they'd have fucking run for the hills. Uh, probably. Because he is <laughs> probably more insane than Charles Manson, um, even at this point in his life. So, Did you see that Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? I still haven't seen that yet. I haven't had the time oh. to watch it, and I really want to. Um, I think it might have gone a little bit more like that. <laughs> might have, have been there. I'm Rick James, you crazy fuckers. So, <laughs> yeah, they'd be, oh, get, get the fuck away from this guy. He is crazy. <laughs> Let's get back home where things are somewhat normal. Um, in 1973, James signed with A&M Records, where his first single under the name Rick James, My Mama, was released in 1974, becoming a club hit in Europe. In 1976, James returned to Buffalo and formed the Stone City Band. Uh, Shortly thereafter, he recorded Get Up and Dance, his second single to be released. In 1977, James and the Stone City Band um, signed a contract with Motown's Gordy Records imprint, where they began recording their first album in New York City. In 1978 of April that year, James released his debut solo album, Come Get It!, which included the Stone City Band. The album launched the top 20 hit You and I, which became his first number one R&B hit. The album also included the hit single Mary Jane, um, which eventually sold 2 million copies, launching James's musical career career to stardom and helping out Motown at the time, who were, they were fucking fading 
fast by this point. Um, holy shit. Give him a little booster shot. Yeah, like, we'll, we will take it. Rick, keep on pumping out the hits. <laughs> in early 1979, James's second album, Busting Out of L7, followed the previous album's success, eventually selling a million copies. A third album, Fire It Up, was released in 1979, going gold. Around that same period, James was uh, James launched his first headlining tour, the Fire It Up tour, and agreed to invite then-upcoming artist Prince as well as singer Tina Marie as his opening act. Just, Good grief. I know. He knows just everybody. Crushing life at this point. He totally is. James had produced Marie's successful Motown debut, Wild and Peaceful, and was featured on the hit debut, I'm a Sucker for Your Love. James was credited <laughs> with naming Marie Lady T on the song, a nickname that stuck with Marie for the rest of her career. The Fired Up tour led to James developing a bitter rivalry with Prince after he accused the, accused the musician of ripping off his act, which you kind of look at the two and you're like, there's something there. Similarities for sure. But then again, it's like, it's Prince. I don't know. Prince did it better. Yeah, he did. Let's be <laughs> honest. Let's be honest. Prince is uh, one of a kind. Rick James was very, very good, but I, I think Prince was Prince, as much as I can see. Um, yeah. Following the end of the tour in 1980, James released the ballad's heavy Garden of Love, which featured his fourth gold record. In 1981, James recorded his best-selling album to date, Street Songs which, like his previous four albums, was a concept album. Street Songs featured a fusion uh, mix of different genres, including rock and new wave, as well as James's brand of crossover funk, enabling James's own style of punk funk. The album featured punk hit funk. singles such as Ghetto Life, the Tina Marie duet Fire and Desire, Give It To Me Baby, and his biggest crossover <laughs> hit to date, Super Freak, which peaked at number yeah. 16. Holy shit, that song. Number 16 on the Billboard Hot 100 and sold over 1 million copies. God damn. Um, street songs peaked at number one on uh, R&B and uh, top th and three on pop, which is amazing. Sold over 3 million copies in the US alone. Following up the success, James released two more gold albums, 1972's Throwing Down and 19... Uh, sorry, 1982's Throwing Down and 1983's Cold-Blooded. During this period... <laughs> Everything he touches turns to gold. At this point, platinum. yeah, and cocaine. <laughs> um, <laughs> during this period, when Prince became a success as a producer and other acts including The Time and Vanity Six, James launched the act's uh, process and the do-rags and the Mary Jane Girls featuring his former backing singer, uh, Joanne McDuffie, as the lead vocalist, and uh, she helped him out with hits like All Night Long, Candyman, and In My House. I'm just going to... Gloss a lot of this, it like goes on about its thing, uh, but we can, I think, we can all agree at this point. Um, it's kind of an amazing career, right? Oh, yeah, up until 1986, he was massive across the world, uh, which is kind of incredible given all he's been through in his life at this point, all the challenges he has turned himself into one of the biggest musicians on the planet. At this point, oh yeah, and he has he worked have, like, five with five gold albums, five gold albums, <laughs> and like he sold over twenty million records at this point worldwide, which is a great number for for that time and that era. Uh, oh, yeah, <clears throat> but now we get to the difficult part, and this is the usual uh, Rick James bullshit. 
James's controversial and provocative image became troublesome sometimes, famous for promoting the use of marijuana live in concerts during a time when simple marijuana possession could lead to long-term prison sentences. He'd smoke that shit on stage and basically challenge the police to arrest him. James was often threatened by cops in various cities that he would be arrested if he smoked marijuana on stage during performances of songs such as Fire It Up and Mary Jane. I wonder why they were called those those names. Uh, I couldn't have anything to do with marijuana. No, exactly. It's not like he was... Smoking joints on stage. Not like he was super into that shit or anything. According to Kerry Gordy, who sounds like Terry Gordy, but the wrestling brain in mind, that's that's me. Uh, most Motown executives erroneously thought latter, the latter song... Um, so this is... T- most Motown executives are so out of touch at this point. They thought that the song Mary Jane was simply just a cute love song to a girl. <laughs> Not knowing that the song was about marijuana. I don't buy that for a fucking second. I, I guarantee at least one of them was still like, no, that's that's weed, right? He's talking about smoking weed. Maybe we should think about this more carefully. Um, <laughs> James's overtly sexual bravado made it tough for him to uh, become a bigger mainstream act after the debut of the fledgling music video network MTV in August 1981. God, MTV used to be so cool. Holy shit. That MTV back in the day was so amazing. Oh, I wish they would bring it. Oh, God. I'm sick of I reality just, television. Just for... Pro- just for- <laughs> Um, what's it? Just for nostalgia's sake, I would love original MTV around, or like up until the early nineties. Oh my god, it was so fucking good. James yeah. tried to present the music videos uh, super freak to the label, only for the channel to turn the video down. James accused the network of racism. MTV denied this, stating the, re- the the real reason Super Freak was turned down by MTV was because they felt James' video was far too vulgar for the channel, which, like, it's fucking MTV. Like, get off. Well, I mean, early <laughs> on, I, could, I guess maybe. Maybe but, in the early days, like, yeah, but that did not last very long they had, at like, all. like, two live crew and shit on there. I know! So. Fucking hell. <laughs> when younger artists such as Michael Jackson and Prince found fame on the channel, James accused the two singers of being tokens in a 1983 interview. Oh. I know, fucking hell. Um, and demanding that any black artist that has a video aired on MTV take their video off the channel in protest. James's rant was co-signed, and this is interesting, by David Bowie, who argued uh, with MTV VJ Mark Goodman about the lack of black artists being featured on the channel, despite the successes of Jackson and Prince. Now, when you got Bowie on your side, you kind of might be right at that point. Maybe. Yeah, it's like there is definitely something there, because early MTV was American music at that time. To have separate charts, we don't, we, didn't, we never had that over here. We just had one really? chart. Yeah, we, we only ever had... The top thirty. It was only, and it, were, it was entirely integrated from the moment like Top of the Pops came around in the nineteen sixties. Before that, even when there were other shows, it was. Um, it was so the idea of like an R and B chart or like an urban chart or whatever it might have been. It's kind of a bit weird to me. Well, we like to take things and put them into little boxes uh, here, okay. so that we can stay good and separate. Yes. Separate, but equal, of course. Uh Uh, When MTV and BET both avoided playing the video for Lucy's Rap because of its graphic sexual content, James considered the networks hypocritical in the light of them still playing provocative videos by uh, artists such as Madonna, which is a fair point. Madonna was pretty... I mean, even back in the 80s, she was super provocative. She hadn't quite done Like a Prayer yet, but man... 
they were pretty out there, some of those videos for the time. Yeah. In, in, oh, 1980, yeah. in 1989, James's 11th album, Kickin', was released only in the UK. By 1990, he'd lost his deal with Warner Brothers and James began struggling with personal and legal troubles. However, to the rescue comes MC Hammer, releasing his signature <laughs> song, You Can't Touch This, which sampled the prominent opening riff from Super Freak. Uh, James and his co-writer on Super Freak, Alonzo Miller, successfully sued Hammer for a shared uh, songwriting credit, and all three consecutively released um, uh, received Grammy Awards for Best R&B Song in 1991, and also got him a shitload of money, because that song was everywhere. Oh my god. Right. I was Oh yeah. I think I was 10 years old. In nine, yeah, I was 10 years old when that song came out. It was on every channel. I mean, we're not just talking about MTV. Like fucking news stories about it. Every video package would feature it. There were people doing the dance, people buying parachute pants. It was kind of Oh crazy. yeah, they started moving it into movies. Yep. They started like yeah. He, yeah. Hammer was everywhere, and I guarantee that like Fifty percent of the money he made off that record went to Rick James, so good for Rick. And the James. rest of it just ran off. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Rick James needed uh, nose candy money, and boy did he get it in spades <laughs> in 1991. In 1997, James released Urban Rhapsody, his first album since his release from prison on assault charges. And he toured to promote the album. The same year, he discussed his life and career in interviews with MTV uh, musical documentary series Behind the Music, which aired in early 1998. That was kind of notorious. I mean, a lot of Behind the Music stuff was quite intense at the time. Uh, But yeah, the Rick James stuff, it's like they haven't seen anything until they see Rick James. Um, it's another show I miss from MTV. Oh God, that was that was so cool. I, I mean, there's an obsession at the moment with documentaries. Until you've seen Behind the Music VH1, you just like it's kind of a lot of the stuff that went on. Oh my God, it's shocking the stuff that they right. reveal in those shows. Um, James's musical career slowed down again after he suffered a minor stroke during a concert in 1998. He was featured on the song Gravy Love with Ike Turner, just an FYI, fuck you Ike Turner, you scumbag, (laughs) um, for the 1998 soundtrack album Chef Aid, the South Park album. Rick James was on South Park. It's fucking made that we can retire happy now that those two things have collided. (laughs) James uh, accepted an offer by Eddie Murphy to appear in the comedy drama Life. So I I kind of didn't include it. I don't know uh, why I didn't include it. I must have just, when I was copying and pasting and writing and stuff, I mustn't have included it. We can't talk about Rick James without talking about the amazing appearances on The Chappelle Show, where... Charlie Murphy talks about his life <laughs> and he talks hilarious stories about his encounter with Prince when Prince absolutely demolished him while playing basketball but the two funniest ones are the Rick James um, moments where he talks about Rick James punching him in his face with a ring that had unity written on it uh, <laughs> and then beating the crap out of Rick James and they actually have Rick James there to recall to kind of talk about some of this stuff and he was like ah charlie murphy thinks he's bruce lee or some shit but then there's another (laughs) one where they talk about rick james going to eddie murphy and charlie murphy's house at the time and uh, eddie murphy had brand new um suede couches and rick james walked in with boots on that were covered in mud and just like deliberately 
smeared mud and crap all over these sofas. And while he was doing it, apparently he was staring both Murphy brothers in the face. So they beat the shit out of him, um, apparently. (laughs) (laughs) To the point where he had to drag himself off the sofas. And they cut back to Rick James. And he's like, I wouldn't just go in someone's house and just smear stuff. I didn't do do stuff just for doing it. No, I wouldn't do that. What, What kind of a person do you think I am? He pauses for two seconds and he goes, yeah, I remember smearing shit all over Eddie Murphy's couch. It's like, what the fuck? <laughs> so Rick James was high during that interview, and boy, can you tell, because he slurs his speech. Even though he's like funny and coherent and stuff, it, 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 he gave us the famous quote, cocaine is a hell of a drug from that interview, which oh, is yeah. just amazing. <clears throat> if you've never seen the Chappelle Show sketches about, uh, well, featuring Charlie Murphy, who, bless his heart, he passed away last year, I think. Um an amazing, amazing talent, Charlie Murphy. Such a good writer as well. Go back and watch them, but be warned, um, Comedy Central does not pay Dave Chappelle royalties for those those fucking appearances. So, Which is nuts. Yeah, that is bullshit. So if you want to stick it to Comedy Central, I feel completely uh, fine in telling you to torrent those because if you're not <laughs> going to pay talent residuals for the work they put in decades ago, then you deserve to have your shit pirated, to be quite frank. Um, now we get to the really messed up stuff. Um, <laughs> friendships. James's friendship with Eddie Murphy and uh, Murphy's older brother Charlie were recounted as uh, they were close friends. Um, he met Eddie Murphy in 1981. Um, he's also close to Charlie Murphy, who worked as a security guard for his brother. And uh, we've just talked about the skits. James was good friends with actress Debbie Allen. Um, Alan once invited James to a Broadway show and sent a car to pick him up. During the show, (laughs) James fell asleep Uh uh, due to exhaustion from prior sexual activities. So yeah, he was up for four days on cocaine and yep. sex. Rick James <laughs> was awake for basically seventy-two hours doing drugs, having sex with as many prostitutes as he could get his hands on, and then his friend was like, "Oh, Debbie, yeah, I'll come to your show." And then he's fucking snoring, probably still got powder all <laughs> over his face. Um, afterwards, Alan <laughs> confronted him in the dressing room. She pinned him down and pleaded that he was throwing his life away. All you do is get high and have sex, she said. He promised <laughs> to change his ways. But he broke his promise the same night. Yeah, because he's Rick, right. Rick James. The same <laughs> fucking night. Oh my god. Uh, James was. Dude, I'm still playing those clips in my head oh. where he's kicking that couch. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck your couch. Uh, so, <laughs> James was also a friend of fellow Motown act performers Smokey Robinson and Marvin Gaye. That's really cool that he could have been like friends with someone he idolized. That's really cool. Right. And, and like, yeah. I kind of, I know Marvin Gaye was no saint, but I kind of feel like if, if Rick James had maybe spent a bit more time with him, maybe he'd have been a bit calmer, you know, a bit more yeah, level-headed, maybe. you know? Because Marvin did not do coke. Marvin was not a coke guy. He probably would have smoked weed and that would have been it, just chilled and drunk and stuff, but that's it. Well, if it would have been Crosby, Stills... Oh, he'd have been dead. Nash and James. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, can you imagine? They'd have all been dead in a year. It would have been terrible. <laughs> um, so let's see. What else have we got? Uh, Idolised as a teenager. Additionally, he befriended Gay's second wife, Janice, and um, his, he was godfather of Gay's daughter, Nona. James's relationship with Robinson began shortly after James signed with Motown, and in 1983, the duo recorded the hit Ebony Eyes, which is a fucking amazing song, got to be honest. Um, 
James also idolised former Temptations lead singer David Ruffin and Ruffin's self-proclaimed, self-proclaimed cousin, bass vocalist Melvin Franklin, and uh, grabbed at the chance to produce the hit Standing on, uh, Standing on the Top for them back in 1982. Before that, the then-current lineup of the group uh, recorded backing vocals on two James-associated projects, uh, James Street songs, uh, including Ghetto Life and Super Freak, and Tina Maria's It Must Be Magic. So, yeah, he's uh, famously shouted out, Temptation, sing! Like that, so that's, that's the Temptation yeah. singing in the background. Now we move on to the drugs. Um <laughs> Here we go. Here we go. <laughs> James's drug problems began in his teens, first with marijuana and then heroin. So that was a very quick uh, escalation. <laughs> Jesus. Uh, he began using cocaine in the late 60s. How the fuck did he live as long as he did? Um, his cocaine addiction increased by the 1980s, so he'd been doing it for 20 years at this point. So his his threshold must have been fucking through the ceiling. And he began freebasing no by the end of the decade. When he smoked crack cocaine in his Beverly Hills mansion, he often put up aluminium foil on the windows to block out onlookers because they're like, oh my God, it's Rick James. Wait, what's all that rock doing around his living room? (laughs) (laughs) Although James claims uh, he quit cocaine when he entered prison, his autopsy found that there was a small amount of the drug in his bloodstream at the time. To be honest, knowing Rick James, that could have been residual. You know? I think by that, doing it for 20 years is... Blood might have just been powder. Yeah, his blood was essentially white at that point. It yeah. was like Aerosmith's <laughs> fucking dressing room in the 1980s. His drug use led to major health problems. In April 1984, he was um, hospitalized after being found unconscious. In the middle of his house by a friend in 1998, he suffered a stroke after a blocked blood vessel ruptured in his neck during a concert at Mile High uh, Stadium in Denver. And imagine the altitude would have probably played a part in that aspect yeah. as well. Um, clumped up that powdery bloody head yeah exactly kind of thinned it out even more earlier that year he had a hip replacement surgery to repair bone damage from jumping around on stage and substance abuse I love that like oh Rick you've got to stop jumping around on stage wait why are you doing cocaine right now Rick we're trying to talk to you about a medical diagnosis <laughs> now we get to the even more messed up shit by the 1990s rick james's drug use was public knowledge he was heavily addicted to cocaine and later admitted to spending seven thousand dollars a week on drugs for five years straight this man holy shit that's so much money oh this is the 90s. Yeah. 7,000 pounds in today's money from the 90s. You're looking at like 30 grand a week. That's so much yeah, money. Yeah, that's nice. That is crazy. James, uh, sorry, on August 2nd, 1991, James and his girlfriend Tanya Hijazi were arrested on charges of holding 24-year-old Francis Alley hostage for up to six days, tying her up, forcing her to perform sex acts, and burning her legs and abdomen with the hot end of crack cocaine pipes during a week-long cocaine binge. He must have been completely delirious or just a bastard, to be honest. Um, That's nutty. That's bad. It's not good, is it? Um, James. So much for... Not being able to be qualified to be a pimp because yeah, he didn't believe in abuse of women. That's pretty fucking... Out the window. Out there, yeah. <laughs> you were definitely qualified to be a, primp, a pimp, buddy. Uh, James faced a maximum <laughs> life sentence in prison if convicted on all charges, which included assault with a deadly weapon, I'm assuming the crack pipe must have been big, aggravated mayhem, <laughs> which sounds like an album he could have released, um, torture... Using that one. Oh, and this is the worst part. Forcible oral copulation, false imprisonment, and kidnapping... 
On November the 3rd, 1992, while out on bail for the incident, James, under the influence of cocaine, assaulted music executive Mary Seiger, Seiger at the St. James Club and Hotel in West Hollywood. Seiger claims uh, she met James and Hijazi for a business meeting, but said the two then kidnapped and beat her for a 20-hour period. He's out on bail for the same fucking thing at this point. James was found guilty of both offences, but was cleared of a torture charge that could have put him in prison for the rest of his life. While serving his five-year prison sentence... What? I know. Fucking kidnaps two people, basically rapes one of them, and tortures them for days on end. He got five years in Folsom. Uh, James lost a civil suit to Seeger, good for her, and was awarded nearly $2 million in damages in 1994. He basically, he would have been wiped out by the time he came out of prison with all this. Um, James was ordered to pay her about $1 million. The hotel and a private security firm were found liable for nearly 750,000 damages, good, uh, due to negligence. James was released from prison on August 21st, 1996, after serving two years in prison for that shit. Not even half the sentence was spent in prison. On the morning of August the 6th, 2004, James's caretaker found him dead in his Los Angeles home uh, at the Oak- Oakwood Toluca Hills apartment complex just outside Burbank. His longtime publicist, Sajita Murthy, released a statement to the media stating he died of natural causes. Fuck off. Um, well, I mean, if you're that addicted to cocaine, I suppose an overdose would be a natural yeah, cause. Yeah, kind of at that point, you are 50% cocaine, I guess. So, <laughs> James died from pulmonary failure and cardiac failure associated with his various health conditions of diabetes, stroke. He had a pacemaker and a heart attack. His autopsy found alprazolam, dia, uh, diazepam, bupropion, uh, citrolopram, citrolopram, hydrocodone, <laughs> digoxin. Well, two of those are <laughs> depression meds. Uh, it, it keeps then... going. Chlorophenarine, um, okay, and meth and cocaine <laughs> and meth and meth and cocaine in his blood. So his uh, blood was essentially pills and coke yeah. at that point and crystal. No kidding. Fuck. However, the coroner stated that none of the drugs or drug combinations were found to be at levels that were life-threatening in and of themselves. Just fucking... How many drugs does someone need in their system before it becomes a problem for a coroner? Really? <laughs> it's like, and well, when your blood stops moving, that's when it's a problem. But it could still move around the pills and the coke and the rock and stuff. Right? Fuck. It's just jellied <laughs> pills. It become a non-Newtonian just, fluid. Uh, at that point, it's like you could have stepped on his blood and made a bridge out of it. However, the coronary... Uh, yeah, we've read that part. Following a public viewing by fans, a private mo- memorial was held at Forest Lawn Memorial Park, Hollywood Hills. James was buried at the Forest Lawn Cemetery in Buffalo, New York in 2004. And thus ends the insane tale of Rick fucking James. And oh my God, it's kind of insane the life that man had. It, Dude, it's not even kind of. It's just straight up yeah. batshit crazy. It is completely insane. And I mean, you know, we've talked about this before about people who become serial killers or people who become problems or people who become dangerous. Early trauma is almost always a significant indicator that they are going to become problems themselves in later life. 
However, Rick James had so much trauma that by the time he was even 19, he was just fucked. There was no chance for him to have a normal life at that point. So what do you make of the the Uh, in-depth life of Rick James? (coughs) Well, I mean, I, um, I I think maybe life got too boring for him, too. I mean, Jesus, he's like... Knocking it out of the park early on. Yes. He's friends with everybody. Everyone. All these talented yeah. people. These legends. It's, what else are you going to do? You just got to start snorting cocaine yep. and heroin and uh, everything else you can get. Literally, literally um, every single <clears throat> drug known to humankind was in his system at the end, apparently. So, fuck. Right. <laughs> um, God, I... Just because the story was so good and his life is so insane, insane. I want to give him like a, a high score. But I mean, yeah, he didn't. Ca- I mean, okay, yeah, he did some pretty horrible shit, like evil shit. Yeah, he get extra points with the burning people with crack pipe and yeah. the torture, rape, yeah. kidnapping thing. But yeah. he didn't I murder anyone. And like did. in terms of, I think I guess you, you look at it in terms of the positives he gave the world. I mean, obviously, you know, he was te- a terrible human being, from what we can tell, but. He gave the world some amazing stuff, uh, some amazing yes. art, and yeah. uh, th- you add points for that. But, you know, it, <laughs> he contributed to society. Some of the people we've covered did not contribute to society. Some people have actually destroyed society for some parts. Some people have ended the world, more or less. So Straight yeah, up. Straight up. <laughs> so for that... Um, you know, th- that goes in his favour, but just the most insane life. And really, when I was thinking about it, because I did have somebody else in mind, and I may cover them at an, a later opportunity, but I was just randomly, I was like, what about Rick James? Oh my God, Rick James. <laughs> and then I remembered all of the shit he got up to, and I, I read more, and I was like, I can't even fucking believe half of this stuff. I didn't even know a lot of the good stuff about him, but yeah, just the most incredible life. Um, why isn't Absolutely. there a Rick James biopic? Is there, there has to be. There should be. The, That's another one. Damn it, Netflix, get on God it. damn it, Netflix, <laughs> give us the money. Um, like, who do you get to play Rick James, though? I mean, really, who's going to take... That's that's a, that's like... Dave Chappelle. Dave Chappelle, fuck, yeah, perfect. <laughs> That's perfect. <laughs> I'm sure he'd do that as long as he got paid enough money, yeah. So what's your score? Yeah, give him royalties, too. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to say... For Rick James. Gosh. I'm going to say 78. I like that, yeah. That's yeah. ironic okay. because that was probably his peak year <laughs> as well. So uh, <laughs> There we go. Yeah, before it all Symbolism. Went, before it went horribly wrong. Um, so there we have it. Ross Pierre, the father of the guillotine in France, gets an 87. And then inversely, Rick James, possibly the father of cocaine, gets a 78. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I I ah. kind of loved doing this. I loved researching Rick James because, I mean, God damn, what a life. Met all oh, these no amazing people, did all of this incredible shit. But the thing is, I just, I kind of wish the last 10 years of his life, because he didn't live long after he was released from prison, I do wish he'd kind yeah. of slowed down because there's always a point at which certain people... Going back to Aerosmith, Steven Tyler, Joe Perry, guys from, um, like, I was going to say the Ramones, but they're all fucking dead. Um, the guys from the Rolling Stones. Um, oh, yeah. Like, there comes a point when these people are just like, maybe I should stop 
so that I can spend some time with my family. And I just wish that Rick James had just like slowed down so that he'd have lived beyond 2004. Because, you know, he was born in 1948. The guy wouldn't have been especially old at this point. You know, he's he's only a few years older than my dad. So I feel like if he'd just right. calmed that shit down, he'd have been okay for right. a while, but he just couldn't stop. So when he had the opportunities he did he could have got uh, clean in prison a lot of people do you know yeah but you know he could have spent those two years getting rehab either finding religion or finding peace um or getting counseling for some of the the stuff that went on because i mean he might gloss over as oh he was kinky at a young age he was sexually abused by that, that that girl and that ain't good so uh, the stuff he was exposed to will have damaged him, and I just wish a world-class psychologist could have gone in and gone, Rick, you have had some fucked-up experiences. Do you want to talk about them? Maybe it'll help. Um, could have. Yeah, maybe it could have done. So, Rick James, an amazing story. Now it's time for our third segment in this special edition episode of History's Greatest Idiots. And this is a person that Derek knows very well, uh, has lived in his state for a number of years, and has experienced elements of his reign of terror most of his adult life. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Sheriff Joe Arpaio. Okay, so uh, I'm kind of excited to bring bring this guy up because he's been uh, a long time entry on my list of not cool people. Right. Okay. But I'm I'm also a little bit nervous because he's local here in my neck of the woods in Arizona, even though he's captured the attention of the nation and the world. Um, wow. I'm I'm nervous because he's litigious and mm. vindictive sometimes, allegedly, perhaps. Allegedly. Allegedly <laughs> is going to be a word you hear a lot in this podcast. Sir, if you want to take the money we make from this podcast by suing us, you feel free to take the $2 that we'll get in advertising <laughs> revenue. Hey, 216. <laughs> yes, sorry, 216. I, I do beg your pardon. But yeah, so carry on, please. Okay, he not only is he litigious and vindictive, allegedly, but allegedly. he's had followers and um, supporters or whatever you want to call them that are equally fucking creepy. Um oh. So he was an American lawman in the Southwest for a time. He was touted America's toughest sheriff. Okay. No, I, that does ring a bell briefly. Even in the UK, we've kind of heard of stuff like that. So, Well, the man that I present to you today is former Maricopa County Sheriff Joe Arpaio. Uh, for those of you that aren't real familiar with him, he, you might remember him from episode 11, where we briefly touched on him while he was being batshit crazy with Steven Seagal. That's right. He did. He was part of the drugs raid that ran yes. over someone's dog with yep. a tank. Uh-huh. That sheriff. <laughs> <laughs> that dude. Okay. So, let's start up. from the beginning. Okay. Uh, he was born in Springfield, Massachusetts on June 14th, which is Flag Day for uh, the Americans that celebrate Flag Day. Okay. Uh, although, is that is that a worldwide holiday? Or is that just something we do here? I don't think so. Like, and, and also, if it's Flag holiday. Day, does that mean that you celebrate all flags? Is it like a day where vexillologists go a bit mad and put up every flag they can find? Or is it just <laughs> that one specific flag? Maybe it's like uh, Earth Day and you've got to plant a flag. Yes. And then you yes. own it. <laughs> and then um. it grows into a million bigger flags. <laughs> so... <laughs> Uh, he's born June 14th, 1932, uh, to... 32, jeez, he's, he's still he's with us. He's old as hell. 
Yes. Yeah, shit. He's as old he as actually, my grandmother. He lost his wife uh, last year, so... Oh, we're sorry about that. Yes, Sheriff. I am, because yeah. I bet That's you she was probably that. cool. Yeah. Um, anyway, his parents were both Italian immigrants, so he was a first generation american citizen yes that's right yeah um so before he became the bane of most immigrants (laughs) existence he was the son of immigrants himself which would make a person think that he might be sympathetic to the hardships of people that are like trying to come up or start a new life in a crazy place we call the united states yeah you would think so no yeah it's not the case (laughs) i'll dive into that in a little bit though uh his mother died in childbirth, so oh, wow. he had kind of a rough start. Yeah, that's tragic. His his dad ran a small Italian grocery store. <clears throat> and in I his own Italian words, stores. sorry. What's that? <laughs> I love in Massachusetts. Oh, wow. That so, must have been right, really rare. Wow, at that time. Goodness me. Well, I, th- yeah, I mean, they migrated from hmm. uh, Manhattan and the Bronx and whatnot, where sure. the Italian okay. immigrants were at that time. Yeah. I would imagine. But uh, his, in his own words, he spent his youth bouncing from home to home with members of his extended family in Springfield. Uh, he says it was his dad's idea of kind of making him feel at home and getting roots in the, in the country. Okay. Uh, he completed high school and worked at his father's store delivering groceries until he was 18, which is right. pretty cool because you think that's back in the 50s he's delivering groceries which they're trying to tout it as a new thing today as a yeah. new technology we deliver groceries absolutely been around for a minute anyway uh in when he turned 18 he enlisted in the united states army and he served in the army from 1950 to 1954 in the medical department and he was stationed in france for part of his time in the military as a policeman even right. though okay. He tells the story he was a veteran of the Korean War, despite never actually entering Korea's borders. St- stolen honor. It's stolen not that there's honor. anything wrong with that, but that would no. be like me claiming to be a veteran of the Afghanistan War, even though I was in the army at the same time, but never even left the United States. Right. Sure. So, yeah. yeah uh, thank you for your service, though. Uh, it just wasn't in <laughs> Afghanistan, but thank you for your service. I yes. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> uh, moving on. In 1954, Arpaio moved to Washington, D.C. after being discharged or leaving the service, and he joined the police force there. Sure. And he was a cop until 1957 when he moved to Las Vegas, Nevada, where he also served as a police officer, but only for six months before he was appointed as a special agent with the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, which... Ooh later became the Drug Enforcement Administration, or the DEA. Right. And I think right there, that's his start into the journey of a world of being shady as fuck, because that's what the DEA is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've heard in numerous examples over the years of... I, I think the CIA look at the DEA and they're like, dude, you guys are shady. Yeah, just, you're too shady for <laughs> us. Just stay uh, away from us. Anyway, during his 25-year 25, 25 tenure with the DEA, he was stationed in Argentina and mm. Turkey and Mexico. And that's a weird place for a domestic law enforcement agency to be stationed. Yeah, that sounds like spy work, really? That sounds like drug-based spy work, pretty much. Pretty much. 
it's it's where to find the next new big thing. Anyway, yeah. he he came back to the states and landed it as the head of the DEA's Arizona branch. Hooray for the citizens of Arizona, I suppose. <laughs> um, <laughs> after leaving the DEA, he became involved with a travel venture before oh. becoming sheriff down here. He signed on with his wife's travel agency, Star World Travel Agency, based in Scottsdale, which is still in operation. And wow. so uh, they do actually do full scale travel agent services, not just this other thing that I'm going to tell you about. <laughs> um, it seems like it would be innocent, but it goes sketchy uh, to quote an article from the Phoenix New Times on the subject a long, long time ago in a galaxy far away. There was no Sheriff Joe Arpaio, but in the mid 1980s, there was an ex-DEA agent named Joe Arpaio who was selling flights into space from a Scottsdale travels firm. What? Yes, sir. Uh, space flights. <laughs> okay, so right, so he wasn't in the DEA. Well, he had retired from the DEA after oh, 25 years, and right. he went to yeah, work sorry. for his wife's travel agency in Scottsdale, and he was and... selling flights into space. To because people in Arizona, yes, because regular travel out of Arizona just isn't enough. <laughs> uh, while okay. working there, he sold uh, these trips for fifty-two thousand dollars to go into Earth's orbit on the Phoenix E space rocket, which he had what? hoped to take off from either Edwards Air Force Base or Vandenberg Air Force Base, and the blast off was expected to be seven years later in nineteen ninety-two. Right. which was the 500th anniversary of Christopher Columbus's voyage to the New World. Okay. No flights were ever made, though, in no, case you were wondering. I, I mean, I, I, think, I think I would have heard of that, really. <laughs> you know, I'd have been, like, in the early 90s, I'd have been, like, 10 or 11, 12, maybe, and I would have been, like, I would have been well into that shit. Like, I would have been, like, oh, my God, you can... Parents, can we go to Arizona, please? <laughs> Holy shit, I want to go. I'd have heard of that in passing. Yeah, you would but... think. So, the interesting tidbit about the entire venture is that it was actually just ahead of its time by maybe forty years. The spacecraft yeah. was supposed to have been built by Society Expeditions and Pacific American Launch Systems. Okay, I, that I imagine there's an acronym in there somewhere, but I'm not going to mess with it. Uh, they said that this rocket was going to take off and land vertically. Kind of like your average rocket in a Ray Bradbury story or, you know, SpaceX. Yeah. Yeah. So makes sense. Yeah. He was he was going to space before the billionaires made it cool. Yeah. And jumped into or, the giant chrome penises and broke the hymen <laughs> of the atmosphere. <laughs> so it's funny because at the time in 1988, the humans weren't capable of any sort of tech that was anywhere no. near resembling this. Not even in 1992 were we going to be capable of doing anything like that. Not even close, no. Despite that, tons of people signed up, I suppose. Uh, according to a 1996 Phoenix New Times article, 252 people paid the $7,000 deposit for the the trip. I guess it's Five, more refundable, right? Well, 5000 uh, went into a refundable escrow, and okay. two thousand was non-refundable. Mm, that go. went into the Society Expeditions bank account, and if you do a little quick math, that means they collected over a half a million dollars just in non-refundable fees for a trip to space that never happened. 
Oh, that's awful. That is appalling behavior. This man's a sheriff or was a sheriff. Not Holy yet. <laughs> Somehow he's, he did all he this calling? and everybody's like, you know what? We should put him in law enforcement. He seems <laughs> on the up and up. <laughs> um, in 1992, when it came, he was elected sheriff of Maricopa County instead of going to space. And then he was reelected in 96, 2000, Jeez. 2004, 2008 and 2012. Oh my God, what was he doing to get himself re-elected? Or was it just uh, like nobody ran against him? People ran against him, but he ran on the like the law and order ticket, and he appealed to our elderly Sun City, and sure. uh, I guess pro-law enforcement at the time. Mm. Uh, people wanted to believe that, you know, law enforcement was good and having a, a, t a sheriff in there that was going to uh, stop illegal immigration and save our jobs um, was a good thing. Anyway, right. <laughs> throughout his time as sheriff, uh, he was a total camera hound too. Mm. He did anything and everything that he could do to get media coverage. He was constantly on the news. Any chance he could get, he was profiled all the time. He, he claimed an average of 200 television appearances per month. Sorry, sorry, per month? I thought you were going to say per year. Nope. That's fucking insane. Always on the television. Holy Anytime shit. he could. I, Worse I, I than don't Trump on Twitter. I don't understand <laughs> lawmen who are, like, desperate to be part of the profile. Like, I, I can kind of, I mean, he did it a lot. I can kind of understand... Jagger Hoover's need in the early days of the FBI somewhat because like there needed to be a face and whatever but like we had a guy like that over in North Wales a guy called Richard Brunstrom who was notorious for being the center of attention whenever like a, a police thing would come around to film like or oh, police on the streets this week he'd always be there and then like dude you're the chief fucking executive what are you doing here and then there was another time um he uh, staged a, a deliberate break-in of the police headquarters so that he could show that their uh, security measures weren't up to scratch and then set off the alarm and prompted a, an armed response. Oh, jeez. Uh, it was just him. And also, he um, he held a press conference for bikers to illustrate that, you know, bikers were coming to North Wales to take advantage of the long, winding, quiet, like, mountainous forest oh. roads. And, you, you mean get a joy ride? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and uh, he was like um, yeah and this is what happens to them and he held up a picture of like a dead body that had been involved in a motorcycle accident and every, all the press in the room were like <gasps> but one journalist was smart enough to go have you had permission from the family to show this picture to us Ooh. and he went uh, uh, bye it's, <laughs> it's interesting that you ask about permission for photos because one of the things that Sheriff no. showed like to do was put up the mug shot and uh, have people rate it like a hot or not sort of situation. Oh, fuck off. Yeah. He had the, the Maricopa <laughs> County inmate uh, mugshot website, <sighs> which people would go to and scroll through to see if your neighbor was on there, I guess. I don't know. Oh, wow. That's that kind of... I, I understand the need to make people aware of, like, you know, instances and news and stuff. I think that like, publishing people's mugshots and stuff and like even like because in this country we have this thing where like they get their address published in oh, an article yeah so they'll be like so and so of this road this town and it's like what why are you fucking doing that Th oh. there are other people that live there why are you doxing that's them? messed up that is really <laughs> fucked up so yeah i i i 
that's well, I just find that all gross. Add to that that it puts up what you're charged with as well, which is oh. fun considering you're innocent until proven guilty, right? Exactly. Ooh. How are you supposed to get an impartial jury? Mm-hmm. Well, maybe they don't have the internet. You gotta have a jury of people who don't have the internet. Yeah, let's hope these old white conservatives who have voted him in year after year on a pro law and order ticket aren't biased against this alleged criminal who's now mm. been on the internet. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> well, the okay. So the thing though with those two hundred television appearances per month is obviously it worked for something because he was reelected in ninety six, two thousand, two thousand four, two thousand eight. He served for twenty four yeah. years from January nineteen ninety three to January first, two thousand seventeen. So, so nineteen ninety three. So he would have been sixty nine when he became when he became sheriff. That's because he was about born right? thirty four, yeah. thirty two. 34. Like 34, right. So 32, yeah, June 14th, 1932. So he would have been 71 when he took over as sheriff, right? Yep. That right. An old bastard, already retired from the government, <laughs> collecting a pension. He's like, I'm going to get elected and collect more government money. I know, but like, don't you think your sheriff should be a vital man? To a certain extent, don't you think he should be maybe under 55, potentially? Yeah, but he you was know? tough. He was tough. He was America's toughest sheriff. It's America's <laughs> toughest sheriff who has to take cod liver oil tablets in the fucking morning. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> Sorry, carry on. That's just why do you why elect old people? What they're I don't miserable. Know. They're always angry. Don't and, elect old people. Jesus. Yeah, and somebody that's been in public service for yeah. 25 years already is probably a little bit out of touch with what things are like if you're not in the if you're in the public sector so exactly i i i know disrespect to people who work for the government in various aspects of various different departments i know my various members of my family have worked in the nhs at, vari at a variety of levels all the way up to chief executive for decades right mm -hmm. and I've known police officers, I've known politicians, I've known councillors, all of these people who worked for various levels of the UK government and establishment and stuff. They all get massively influenced by the shit they see every day. So if you've got someone who is an emergency uh, room nurse and who works there for 25 years, right, just sees gunshot wounds and damage and broken limbs and fights and vomit and drunks and blah, 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 that becomes their perception of the world. Which is even when they retire. Up. So <laughs> that's a problem. And because yeah. they work so hard, they don't get to see the rest of the world. You know? That is an unfortunate truth right there. Yeah, it's scary. Anyway, sorry. Uh, rant over. Carry on, please. That's all right. So <laughs> during his 24 years, uh, Sheriff Joe was accused of numerous types of police misconduct, including abuse of power, misuse of funds, failure to Ugh. investigate sex crimes, criminal negligence, uh, abuse of suspects in custody, wow. improper clearance of cases, unlawful enforcement of immigration laws, uh, unlawful enforcement of election law violations. Uh, Jesus. And then a, a federal court monitor was appointed to oversee his office operations because of the complaints of racial profiling. And just like a little dive into a culture, I think, of the Maricopa County office. It, uh, mm. sheriff's office is when he was on tv he would do television shows like in late 2008 and early 2009 joe arpaio appeared on smile you're under arrest which was uh, a three episode fox reality channel right. television series where 
people with outstanding warrants were tricked into coming in to win a prize or something, and oh, then they arrested that. their ass. Yeah. <laughs> you get a free boat if you come along to this lecture. So, yeah. So it's it's funny, but at the same time, you're being a lion scumbag. So, yeah. I mean, uh, the, I mean, as far as I can tell from that rap sheet, he's done everything short of racketeering, pretty much. Oh, yeah, he's... Uh, We'll get into it. Anyway, Allegedly. <laughs> the, the U.S. Department of Justice concluded that Arpaio oversaw the worst pattern of racial profiling in U.S. history Jesus. and subsequently filed a lawsuit against him for unlawful discriminatory police conduct. That's, so That's appalling. Yeah. Arpaio and the Maricopa County Sheriff's Office were named as defendants in a dozen or more civil lawsuits that were brought by citizens that were arrested from or, by Arpaio and his deputies. And they alleged wrongful arrest, wrongful death, entrapment, and a ton of other claims that ended up costing the taxpayers of Maricopa County $140 million. Fuck me. But he saved money Marvel by putting his criminals in tents. So, Oh, yes. I Now, I saw that. I saw a BBC documentary. A reporter must have gone around, shoved them all in tents outside in the scorching heat. Yes. It was like a mash. And, it was crazy. And, and here's the thing about those tents that a lot of people haven't talked about. The people that were in those tents, the ones that were, you know, getting what they deserve, they broke the law. Yeah. Uh, those were DUIs. They were failure to appears. They were failure to pay fines, even uh, um, like not registering your dog and not paying the fine for not registering I'll, your dog could you land you can? in the tents. That's yeah, that's ridiculous. Those are the people that were in tents. Australia and all the other ones. in prison? The indoor people um where the 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 assaults and battery and murder yeah. and rape and yeah that. Jesus Christ so congratulations you failed to register your dog you're going to spend 6 months in a tent the well fuck? but there was work release so you just spend the night in the tent but and why the fuck are they was, living in a tent it's super weird in there too cuz it's like they all read the how to go to prison handbook. So it's like segregated by races and whatnot. And they've got oh, people no. that think they're running the yard, even though it's there's assholes that are in there for like two or three weeks. And it's, it's, it's a mess, Jesus. but that's horrible. You know, he's hard on crime. So <laughs> anyway, apparently hard on anything. Like he's just oh, hard I, I, on people. Pretty much. <laughs> yeah. Jesus. Remember when I said he was the son of immigrants and the first generation U S citizen. Oh Yeah. I forgot about yeah, that. well, apparently he's got zero empathy for immigrants because in his time as sheriff and over the course of his career, uh, he was subjected to several federal civil rights lawsuits. And oh in one God. case, the defendant uh, in a decade long suit in which the federal court announced an injunction barring him from conducting immigration roundups. That, that was the fun thing where his him and his deputies and the posse members, which is where the he deputized old civilian people to dress up in police gear and help yeah. them conduct raids where they rounded up maids and uh, uh, construction sites. And yeah, they went after any immigrants that they could. Or anyone they thought was an immigrant, basically. Anybody that was brown. I was going to say, that's basically what they're doing, isn't it? Yeah. And, and I'm sure these fucking, you know, deputized pensioners are armed to the teeth with like all sorts of weapons and stuff that they really shouldn't be carrying and using to round people up. That is like fucking Planet of the Apes level it's, craziness right there. Like, Jesus. It's something, I'll tell you. <laughs> that um, is terrifying. Yeah, okay. So the federal order um, said that 
after, or excuse me, after the federal order was issued, uh, Arpaio's office continued to detain people um, that they said persons of interest for further investigation, but they did it without any sort of reasonable suspicion that a crime was or had been committed or was about to be committed. So according to the federal court finding in July of 2017, he was convicted of contempt of court for not following that order. Good. And, well, he was pardoned for that by President Trump in August of 2017. Fucking Trump. (laughs) (laughs) So in a separate racial profiling case, uh, that concluded in 2013 Arpaio and his subordinates were found to have unfairly targeted Hispanics and in their conducting of traffic stops. And that was also cleared out as well. Oh my God. It's horrible. Now, ironically in an undisclosed source that's close to me, that might be me that worked for the sheriff's office briefly (laughs) in 2000 as a detention officer at one of the jails in Phoenix. He told me this story uh, that some people might call an inmate inmate abuse. Okay. And and it has to do with immigration as well. So one morning while uh, my source was working the gate at the jail, Mm. a Nazi skinhead was booked in and arrested. And when they were processing him, they noticed that he was not a U.S. citizen. He was born in Scotland. Though oh. you listen to his story, he'd never been to Scotland. He was born there and, and came to the United States with his parents well before ever um, growing up or knowing or learning of Scotland. So he, Why? he thinks he's an American for the most part. His parents just keep getting him the visa or whatever, or however that works. Uh, okay, I had a, yeah. a friend from Poland that did that, too. But anyway, sure. this guy, he's not a citizen. He's born in Scotland. He committed a violent crime. And so now he was on an INS hold, which was what they called it back then, the Immigration Mm -hmm. Nationalization. Now it's ICE or some shit. They like to change their acronyms around, keep it fresh. Um, So they put him in the two holding tanks that were up front for INS hold. And the detainees of Hispanic descent were crammed really tight into one side, into one of the holding cells. And most of the time there wasn't any toilet paper or anything in there. There was nowhere to sit or poop smeared on the walls, things of that nature. It wasn't nice. No. Um, The Nazi was in the other one because, (sighs) you know, you wouldn't want him to do stuff. But then the supervisor came up and he thought it'd be funny. uh, What if we put the Nazi in the INS hold with the rest of the INS holds? And he, he was beaten pretty bad. Yeah. Because he's a Nazi. Yeah, well, people decided he had enough. They moved him into the other cell. And while I don't like Nazis, I kind of feel like the dude got some instant karma, but I don't (laughs) condone throwing people into the wolves just for a sense of justice or a laugh even. No, absolutely no. Everybody deserves, um, you know, protection. You know, no matter what they've done, you need to give them a fair trial and you need to give them the opportunity to correct their mistakes or, or whatever it might be. And if this guy is an illegal immigrant, then you need to go through the legal processes that are in place for someone that matches the criteria of the law, it, even if he should probably have been naturalized if he'd been living in the country for X number of years, whatever it is. Anyway, right. but um, yeah, that's perhaps he was here if- illegally. Well, yeah, and like if, if you're gonna if you're gonna do that, right? If you have 
a bunch of people crammed into one cell and one guy just taking up all of the space in the other cell. Why don't you essentially move him to a non-cell, handcuff him to a bench or yeah. something like that, and then just spread them out in the two cells and clean the, the dirty one up? Well, Doesn't that make sense? He's still it does. Safe. It does, and unfortunately, I feel like the story is consistent with the culture of the sheriff's office at that time under Jesus. Arpaio. So... It's that's, that's just the start to the poor jail conditions. And I could go on for hours with bad stories and expert yeah. or excerpts from lawsuits and, and whatnot like that. But I'm just, I'm he was here for years. Bad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he has a long history of alleged abuse. The um, funny thing is, um, uh, sorry, have, have you finished with like the history and the story? No, no, no. Because okay. I, I've got a little bit more to go because okay, he's, go for he, it, yeah. He also was investigated for politically motivated bullshit and prosecutions Ooh. like uh, Mayor Phil Gordon okay. of Phoenix. Right. He says that Arpaio's long list of questionable prosecutions was a reign of terror and his targets of the alleged abuse pow of power include Phoenix Gordon or Phil Gordon, the mayor of Phoenix, yeah. uh, Dan Sabin. Arpaio's 2004 and 2008 opponent to the office of sheriff for Maricopa County. Jesus. Uh, Terry Goddard, the Arizona attorney general who let the feds look at his uh, history of abuse. David Smith, Maricopa County manager, the Maricopa County board of supervisors. Those are the people that pay us. Anyway, Barbara Mundell, a superior court presiding judge, Jesus. Anna Baca, a former Maricopa superior court, presiding judge gary donahue superior court criminal presiding judge it, it goes on and on and on but john holmberg the radio show host at 98 kupd here was mm. a target and what? his two were ridiculous investigations that was kind of a common thing our arpaio would do to probably meet his quota of two 200 television <laughs> interviews um he yeah. investigated him on two separate times for one for a stunt that involved a dog that he deemed sexual in nature and <laughs> he called animal abuse, oh but God. found out that it wasn't. And so that was dropped. Yeah. Then the second time uh, after the DJ had made statements speaking out about him, he also made statements speaking out about gas prices and the recession and how bad it was getting. And then he made a joke about wanting to light him on fire. It was so bad. Uh. And those statements Brought on charges uh, or an investigation for inciting a riot. Inciting a riot? Mm-hmm. So he likes to go after people that don't like him or oppose him or talk about him badly. That's... As well. Jesus. But he's I, not I, sheriff I, anymore, so there. Well, thank God. <laughs> when was the last time he was sheriff? And what? how many parties were held in the street after he left? Oh, my goodness. I, I voted against him every time I was able to since <laughs> I was 18. And Holy I, shit. I, he just kept getting elected and I'm like, what the hell? But well, yeah, once he was gone, he was gone and it was good. And I'll wrap up by saying, uh, remember the birther movement? Did you guys hear yes. about that over there? Yes, we did. Yeah. yeah. He was a, a headliner hard charger on that. He was part of the group of people that challenged Obama's citizenship and actually was the law enforcement officer saying that, uh, the long form birth certificate that was released by the white house in 2011 was a computer generated forgery. And then he also let his posse claim that Obama's selective service card was a forgery because old volunteer people know exactly what the hell they're talking about. 
and uh, uh yeah. yeah so it it goes on and on and on and he got pardoned and then Jesus. he ran a couple unsuccessful campaigns one for senate that he lost to kirsten cinema uh, oh no he lost to martha mcsally okay who wait i don't know one of them they both ran against each other when he lost to them so awesome yeah. so he lost twice is the key yeah. point and then he <laughs> ran for sheriff again and lost thank god that was just in 2020 just but just put him on yeah. a fucking rocking chair on the porch and let him just relax you know this guy's 90 years old and crazy stop letting him anywhere near a polling booth Jesus. <laughs> uh, you know so, it's funny you sorry go on no he's just sheriff joe arpaio just a total dick and yeah. somebody that i think makes a perfect history's greatest oh, idiot he is <laughs> perfect as as one of our idiots it's weird you know you were saying um i don't understand how he kept getting elected it it, it does it used to at least um surprise me when tories would win or when like ultra right-wing conservative i mean ultra right-wing we're getting like percentage of the votes uh, right. like like higher than say the green party or something like that and it'd always be like how the fuck is this clearly racist person getting 15 percent of the vote it's because yeah. we both unfortunately it is as much as we don't want to admit it the uk and the us at the core deep down are deeply conservative countries and we we I, want them to be a bit more open, but yeah. I just I think, think we're deeply hateful as a as a culture. <laughs> For some reason, we just well. like to be mad. I know it's so it's so weird. And and in the UK, we don't necessarily like to be mad, but we certainly like to be passive aggressive. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we'll do it in a quiet and restrained way. Um, it's it's so it's so dark and sometimes we can look at situations that may have shaped the man. I'd imagine losing, not growing up, growing up without a mother, I think will probably have meant that he missed out on a certain level of nurture, Perhaps. nurturing, you know, and that kind of empathetic bond that can develop when you have a mother that teaches you about, you know, feelings and other people's feelings and stuff like that. I feel that, growing up in that circumstance without a mother his dad would have been busy with work trying to support the family i guess with his shop it's like he, yeah. he missed out on so much early emotional development and i feel like that has probably shaped this bastard that we are left <laughs> with now um and i i'm sure he will take if you are listening to this you litigious bastard uh, i'm sure he'll take pride in being called a bastard by a Welsh socialist oh, because you know what? What's that? I forgot a bit. I forgot oh, a bit yes. of the thing where in uh, 2007 he mm. was compared to the Ku Klux Klan, right? And he said he was proud to be associated with such an organization, although he's taken uh. it back and said he no longer has that view. That does mean while he was sheriff, that asshole said he was proud to be compared to the KKK. Fuck me. Sorry, um, I forgot that tidbit. Yeah, sorry, I've, <laughs> I've grown out of it now. I'm 90 years old. I no longer believe the crazy things I believed in my 80 year old youth. Um, yeah. oh, fucking hell. Um, <laughs> yeah, he's he's kind of so extreme in the decisions he made. It, it's so disturbing that this man had as much power as he did for as long as he did. I know. 
and and just like <laughs> that alone shows that there is a deep flaw in the way people view law enforcement and the structure of society and how its laws should be applied mm-hmm. most of those people you were talking about who are living in tents none of those people should really have been in prison they should have either been in um, recovery or in education programs or in some sort of situation where they were made to be accountable for their actions but they weren't just shoved in a tent in the middle of the fucking desert because yeah. that's not going to help anyone I don't care. Well, I, I believe in punishment. I don't believe in prison because prison, especially in the UK and the US, just makes people more angry, more resentful, more disassociated from society. It breeds contempt. And that is not what you want. It works in Norway and Denmark and Sweden because they have really good rehabilitation rates, something like 10% of their their criminals reoffend. Just 10%. Really? Yeah. That's amazing. There's a, there's a, a prison in Norway, which is an island. It is a working island. It's a farm. People who are multiple murderers, rapists, you know, worst kind are sent to this prison. They all live in like these group houses. There's maybe four people to a house. They all have jobs. Sometimes they leave the island to go to their job. They come back at night. They're allowed to see their families at weekends. They come back to the prison during the week. Denmark, they have this kind of open prison where the guards are uh, kind of encouraged to go and have like cups of coffee and sit with the inmates and stuff like that. Uh, Their prison system works because they give their prisoners skills, they educate them, and they treat them like human beings. Yeah, well, and they're probably in nice positions. Yeah, they're probably not putting the the people in jail, though, the way they are here, just because they're the dirty, low people that they want away from my eye line. It's just. It's it's scary how much of a, a kind of an industry the prison system oh, yeah. is in various countries. But this guy, Joe Arpeggio, was it? Arpe- Joe Arpaio. Arpaio. <laughs> Arpeggio. That was giving him too much credit there. Uh, <laughs> Joe Arpaio um, basically started his life slight, potentially scamming people out of half a million dollars, allegedly. And, um, and then kind of became a sheriff and applied the letter of the law to the point of judge dread levels of oh, intensity yeah. fuck me um so in terms of scoring this guy and if you are listening joe hello uh congratulations <laughs> on learning how to learning on <laughs> discovering what podcasts are um yes this welcome to your iphone um i'm gonna say he is a solid 89 all oh, right um, okay usually <laughs> And, and, and the, I would have scored him higher had he not lost his mother at childbirth. I feel like that. I feel like that's a big mitigating factor. I think in so. Yeah. Some of his behavior. I feel like in terms of emotional development, not having that anchor to empathy and nurturing and love and stuff, I feel like that would have helped a little bit. Maybe would have made him a better person. But you know, it's funny my grandmother grew up in in very similar circumstances to him she wasn't an immigrant but they were definitely working class like very poor working class she was born into the depression her her father was a qualified engineer but he was delivering coal because there oh. were no jobs yeah. you know her mother was constantly ill because this is in the days before the nhs when you actually had to pay for a doctor to come out and basically your week's wages will go on the doctor's visit and then eventually my grandmother's mother died at the age of 12 this is a woman who survived the depression 
lived through the Luftwaffe's blitz on Manchester for years when she was a teenager. She survived a scarlet fever camp when she Goodness. was a child. She um, was there at the dawn of the NHS when penicillin was discovered and suddenly people started living. Um, yeah. And she, you know, raised a bu- uh, two kids and a bunch of grandkids and stuff. And there's this 90 year old woman who's like four foot ten and she's just the smiliest, happiest, wonderful person you could possibly meet. And then you got Joe, who's the exact <laughs> same age, and he might be a fan of the Ku Klux Klan. So <laughs> and yeah. I, yes, he's had a tough life, but not that tough, you know? Right. Yeah. So well, yeah, yeah. He's I could I could complain and tell stories forever on that guy. And now, for our fourth and final segment, I would like to introduce you to the living legend of idiocy that is Billy McFarland, the guy responsible for the notoriously awful and terrible fire festival. I would like to tell you the story of William Z. McFarlane. <laughs> better known as Billy McFarlane. And I'm gonna the title of my guy is just how he's listed on um Wikipedia, which is Billy McFarland Billy McFarland, brackets fraudster. So, <laughs> not even <laughs> entrepreneur, nothing, just just fraudster. That's that's his name on uh, that's his given Damn. moniker on Wikipedia. Amazing. Got him. Got him. (laughs) William Z. McFarlane was born in 1991. No specific month there. I guess he may have lied about that. He was (laughs) raised in the Short Hill section of Milburn, New Jersey. His parents are real estate developers. And McFarlane told the New York Times that at the age of 13, he founded an online outsourcing startup that matched clients with web designers. He graduated from Pingree School in 2010 and went on to attend Bucknell University, where he dropped out in May of his freshman year. So very similar to um, Pillow King of... Yeah, just a few months and then he's out. Yeah, just just ghosted out. I mean, May, you did not... You you lasted the winter. Congratulations, but you didn't make it to summer. Um, And uh, yeah, so he dropped out of college... Um, towards the end of his freshman year and founded the short-lived online advertising platform Spling. Where Never he, heard of it. <laughs> nope. Where he served as CEO. TechCrunch described Spling as a content-sharing network, criticizing its similarity to other services which existed at the time. I mean, that happens. You know, people m- mimic, don't they? It's very common. Yeah. Um, in August 2013, McFarlane seeded payments company Magnesis with $1.5 million of investment funding, aiming to create an exclusive black card with social perks, such as club membership targeted at status-oriented uh, millennials in certain big cities, i.e. New York, pretty much exclusively New York. I, I feel like that um, when I started my logistics company, in like <clears throat> 18 or 19 right. that people were offering me the opportunity to have this black card and i'm like what is it like a credit card and it's like no it's a your cool card yeah that's <laughs> What's pretty it much it's showing pretty much what this is yeah <laughs> get it out and show people because then like you're you're a millennial you're a cool millennial <laughs> if you have this card i don't i don't give a fuck uh, <laughs> 
So Magnesis was widely compared to American Express's black card, officially known as the Centurion card, which is that's a sexy fucking name right there. You go for ancient yeah. Rome there, American <laughs> Express. Similarities between the two cards include uh, that they're both black and made of metal. That's pretty much where. And uh, oh, and also promised exclusive perks to members. Again, he's essentially ripping off an existing idea. That seems to be his bag. Yeah, right? that's like exactly the same deal. Basically, basically. Yeah. <laughs> Despite appearances, however, Magnesis's card was not a real charge card. Instead, each card copied the Magstripe um, information from a customer's existing Wells Fargo or Bank of America card, for which it could then be used as a substitute. So it's just, mm. yeah. Uh, by December 2013, the company had about 500 members. Benefits offered to members included VIP access to clubs, hotel discounts, and various exclusive events that you can pretty much get online if you look a little bit. So it's not if you really Google that, that shit. Yeah, literally, <laughs> just like go on, uh, what is it, fucking various websites, and you can get these discounts, no problem at all. Uh, what was it, Groupon? Or, or shit yeah, there you I go. Know. There you go. You, you don't need a card. It's, it's not taking up re real estate in your wallet. Um, the company was initially based out of a rented townhouse in the West Village neighborhood of Manhattan, New York. The owner of this townhouse filed a lawsuit against McFarland in 2015, alleging that McFarland had trashed the building, uh, an accusation he denied. Uh, I mean, it's kind of a situation where only rock stars and directors of terrible Fantastic Four films should be trashing houses like that, to be honest. But yeah, apparently Billy got in on the act as well. He's, he was trying to... Um... What is it? Fake it till you make it. That's it. Oh, yeah, there was this time <laughs> I had my company and we got a little drunk and you yeah, know, we he trashed the building. <laughs> it's fucking Kate Moss over here. Uh, the case was settled in January 2016. The company subsequently relocated its headquarters to the Chelsea neighborhood of Manhattan. Um, and by the end of 2016, it was operating in New York and Chicago. And according to McFarland, its membership had grown to the tens of thousands. Take that with a massive pinch of salt. I would say probably a couple of thousand at most. Now, was there a charge to be part of this exclusive black card thing? <laughs> there absolutely was. Um, <laughs> members paid a $250 fee to, I know, to have a card. Uh, which is a lot of money to pay for a small black lump of metal, basically. Yes. <laughs> Just Hell get yes. a fucking Sharpie and colour in your <laughs> Wells Fargo card. Save yourself some money. Christ. Um, yeah. This is where it gets really juicy. McFarland met rapper Jar Rule when he attempted to book him for an event. The story, which McFarland told at the Web Summit in November 2016, goes that he had to go through numerous people and apparently a helicopter to get in touch with Jar, uh, with Jar Rule, the rapper. Uh, but once he did, apparently mine's connected and he made Jar Rule a celebrity ambassador for Magnesis. Who fucking needs a celebrity uh, ambassador for a fucking charge card? Jesus. Let me interpret that for you. So they got together and smoked weed, man. Yeah. <laughs> And yeah, they came up with an idea. <laughs> and he, Billy was like, this guy's famous. I'm going to glum onto him. And Ja Rule was like, this idiot has a shitload of money. I'm going to glum onto him. Yeah, so he came in, mutually, in a helicopter. Yeah, it's a mutually <laughs> beneficial ego arrangement. Uh, a former employee of Magnesis who was featured in the Hulu documentary Fire Fraud said that Ja Rule had nothing to do with the business side of the company. Yeah, no shit. You know, yeah. Uh, oh, let's bring Jar Rule in as the the chief marketing office officer or fucking CEO or 
Never Again, that's, that's that scary strategy of trying to make something look legit by attaching something that somebody pe- or someone that people trust to it. Yeah. I mean, yeah. as much as you trust a rapper. Ja Rule. For, well, like, I mean, I, I, I probably trust some rappers. For like, what I it a, was. I mean, that yeah. makes sense. Yeah, I, I get it. You know, I, and I think like I would trust Common. I think I probably trust uh, Most Def. I definitely trust most F. Um, don't know if I trust Jar Rule. I don't know if there's something about him. Just I've seen too many documentaries where he's featured. I think to maybe trust him now at this point. Now um, he was in Fast and Furious movies, wasn't he? I think that's ludicrous. Uh, yeah, I think that might be ludicrous. Okay. Who well, that... was also featured on the roast of Justin Bieber, and. Um, there were multiple <laughs> jokes made in his uh, at him about the the number of children he has with different women. Oh goodness! Uh, yeah, so uh, well, what was I... it? The, the classic joke because he was on stage. Uh, Sh- Shaquille O'Neal was there. Snoop Dogg was there. Uh, Kevin Hart was there. Um, Pete Davidson was there. Uh, Martha Stewart was there. And, and a female comedian, she got up on stage and she said, all these rappers on this stage and Martha Stewart's done the most jail time. <laughs> <laughs> That's nice. fucking brilliant. Oh, um, yeah. So, yeah, uh, moving on with Jar. Um, so, yeah, he's now the celebrity. Uh, let's see. He, he has nothing to do with the business side, but he is the celebrity ambassador of magnesis and if you watch the documentary it becomes very obvious very quickly that while Ja Rule wasn't necessarily complicit in any of the crimes he sure as hell knew that there was something fucking dodgy going on and was desperate for a paycheck to the point which he actually deliberately gaslit anyone who raised concerns and spent pretty much the majority of his time with Billy McFarlane kissing his ass even after everything had gone down Okay, uh, so that's your jar rule. That's pretty much a summary of his involvement, to be honest. Um, after Magnesis, McFarlane created the Fire app and Fire Media. The app was meant to operate sort of like Tinder. This is what the article says: pairing up users with artists who could deny or approve a request to be booked for an event and set up their own booking fees. Um, and this is where Fire Festival was born. McFarlane and his team wanted to promote the app by throwing a music festival. Um, now the Tinder analogy kind of works. I would say it's kind of a cross between Tinder and Cameo. So okay. you know you can swipe right to approve, but like you know, and actually when you think about that as an app, that's not such a bad idea. I'm sure that it's been innovated on since it probably existed at the time. As it well. seems like that app is the sort of thing that'll get you the when we were young festival. Yeah. I want them and I want them and I want them. Yeah, I want all of these people. Do you have the money to pay for them? I'll take out loans. Uh, (laughs) So, according to Billboard, McFarlane and Jar Rule scouted locations for the festival in the Bahamas in early 2016, where they met Delroy Jackson, a local fixer who was associated with, who was later associated with Fire and seen in the Hulu documentary. Uh, Poor old Delroy got so much shit for his involvement. And so, the initial thing, and this is not something that's covered in this article, this article's not bad, but it's like kind of skips over some initial things. They touted it as Pablo Escobar's island or former island owned by him it's essentially a mosquito ridden strip of 
sand in the middle of the Bahamas. And they had plans to fit like 5,000 people on this island. And the guy who was a fixer for them was like, you can't fit 500 people on this island. Like they physically will not fit on. And then you've got staging and toilets and camping and all of this shit. And uh, yeah. So in the film, uh, Delroy Jackson said that he told McFarlane on the sets that a festival was not going to be possible in the area um, that he was looking at. But as we know, that didn't stop McFarlane. Several people told Billy McFarlane that it wasn't possible to hold a festival. One person that raised objections, uh, most of them were swiftly fired. One of the ones that was swiftly fired was a pilot. Uh, I have to do this now. People who were listening after the fact, I'm doing the inverted, the hand Quote fingers. Quote fingers. Uh, I'm going to use that now. Uh, a pilot who taught himself to fly using Microsoft Flight Simulator. You mean like no a lessons, terrorist? No formal lessons. Just taught himself with Microsoft Flight Simulator and uh, passed his fucking test. Yeah. Uh, so how do you learn to fly? Oh, I played a bunch of Star Wars games. It's essentially <laughs> the same thing. Uh, I'm a fucking astronaut too. That's uh, yeah. I'm an astronaut. <laughs> I played Star Wars. Uh, yeah, and um, so this this guy would be taking people like multiple people, like these these dual engine planes would be piled with like eight nine people, and he'd be taking them up and doing multiple zero g drops in the planes. He'd be going all the way up and then just vomit committing right down again. With oh and he's he got no official training. He's just done Microsoft Flight Simulator. God, um, I wonder if he even knows if the plane is capable of handling that sort exactly. of shit. Exactly. That's the oh. question I had in mind. So he was, not only was he a pilot, but he was like the guy handling logistics. And the guy who has no official training in being a pilot was trying to talk sense to Billy McFarlane. That's where we're at already with Fire Festival. Billy fired him immediately. Um, in a December, in December, a gaggle of supermodels and influencers started posting lavish Instagrams from what seemed to be the same Bahamas trip. But because they tagged many of the images with Fire Festival, people quickly um, caught on to the trip being a viral marketing tactic. While in the Bahamas, the models, including Bella Hadid, Emily Rajkowski, and Haley Baldwin also participated in an hour infamous marketing video for the fire festival that raised awareness of the event. So apparently the shoot was like a week long fucking bender that everyone was constantly drunk. Billy McFarlane passed out and fell asleep on the beach at one point with the cameras rolling. Jeez. Um, That's where they blew the whole budget for the damn festival. Basically. Yes. They hired a bunch of yachts. They, they paid supermodels hundreds of thousands of dollars to show up to this thing. And actually, the supermodels have said afterwards, like, we didn't know anything. Like, our agents told us to show up to this thing. We had very little information. And there's like a dozen of them there. There's a fair number of them. But you can tell as the footage goes on, they are becoming increasingly more concerned for their safety because oh. they don't know. They're like, that's Jar Rule. We don't know who any of these other people are. <laughs> and like, um, ja there's one part where Jar Rule, like, and also these guys are drunk. They're talking in like business terms, but not business. It's a bit Wolf of Wall Street. That's what I'm picturing right there. Yeah. And they're hitting on the women and sometimes in the most aggressive ways possible. And there's one part where Char Rule just turns to a group of like two or three women and he just goes, get in the fucking pool. And they just sort like he's trying to, because they're having this discussion about like, oh, it'd be great footage if we just like jumped in the pool and we look carefree. And the girl's like, no, I'm not doing that. I've like done my hair. I'm wearing a nice dress. I'm not fucking like, get in the fucking pool. Oh, jeez. Um, they just sort of like 
they fri- like a couple of them freeze and go and like wave him off. It's really disturbing and incredibly awkward at the same time because Ja Rule looks like that fucking idiot at a party that everyone's like, oh, can we just get rid of him? Yeah. Please. He's making it uh. worse. Um, yeah, Kendall Jenner was paid to promote the festival via a since-deleted Instagram, though Jenner, of all people, should have known uh, whatever lives on the internet never dies. She was paid $250,000 for one Instagram post. Uh, yeah. We're in the wrong game, man. We're, yeah, <laughs> we're in the wrong fucking game. I, I need I to get prettier. Fifty bucks for an, yeah. <laughs> we need to get prettier. We need to get taller, thinner, and prettier. Um, yeah, it's too late. <laughs> I'll just stick with being a Celtic Hobbit. Jenna <laughs> posted that she was hype to announce that I love being British and saying words like that. That her <laughs> G O O D music family were going to be headliners at Fire. G-O-O-D, good, Music Inc. is a record label founded by her brother, then brother-in-law, Kanye West, and currently or previously included uh, artists like Pusha T, Kanye West, and Tayana Taylor. No, I don't know who that last one is. Uh, none of whom ever appeared at Fire Festival. Yeah. So that was a fucking lie. I don't think they were ever going to. I think that was just another buy-in. But 250 grand. And there's, there's footage of like... Um, after the whole thing went down, paparazzi catching up with her as she's going into a restaurant and asking her, hey, hey, Kendall, how was Fire Festival? And she goes, ha, 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 ha. <laughs> she's laughing about it. It's like, yeah, I made out with a shitload of money. I don't care. Are you allowed to make money knowingly fucking lying yeah. to people? Pretty much. Well, I mean, what are we talking? Look at the world we live in, man. You know, okay. we're just talking about Russian bots and Trump. I mean, True. there's 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 a whole world of money to be made from lying. I have to um, figure this shit out. I got to be a better bad guy. Yeah, we really need to be more arsehole and stop being so, <laughs> you know, fucking principled. In the documentary Fire Fraud, the fire team is shown at a New Year's Eve party in 2017. One of the festival contractors involved says that they didn't, um, they hadn't done much despite being four months out from the festival's launch. Because the majority of festivals, when you're planning your first festival, you need like a year and a half at least to yeah. plan shit like that. You, you're planning, you need permits, you need to get in contact with people. They've got schedules booked up for years ahead sometimes. You need to get staff and all of that stuff arranged. And they did it in, they tried to do it in six months, I think less than that. But four months me, out, they still. I was going to say, it guys? took me six months to book a dive bar concert with three bands. Oh, yes, exactly. <laughs> and actually, this is a conversation I was having with my wife after having watched this documentary. Like, if they just booked a concert, right, to, to promote this app. Right. Mm -hmm. You book a concert, you get Kanye to headline, you get these good artists, whatever it is, just three acts, get a venue, put on a lavish venue. You know, you spend, let's say, a million dollars. You spend a million dollars on a venue, right? You don't have to, it doesn't have to be big. It just has to look good, invite really interesting influencers. You know, you invite your Instagrammers and some select contest winners, stuff like shit. I sound like I could do this now. Um, (laughs) And and all of a sudden, you've got yourself an event and you get people to post about it on Instagram. It's not quite the level of what they were planning had that worked out, but it would have worked, right? There's your promotion right there. And that's much easier to do in six months than a fucking festival on a beach in the Bahamas that was owned by Pablo Escobar. You know, people are camping and shit. Yeah. And like not even camping, like being promised luxury villas and shit. We'll get to that. Um, 
<laughs> yeah, yurts and stuff. And what's a fucking yurt doing on the beach? Um, the festival contractors involved said that they hadn't done much, despite being four months out from the festival launch. In the documentary, Delroy Jackson, the fixer, brought up the need to go into overdrive to fix it in time and was met with complete apathy from uh, Billy McFarlane and his happy, merry troop of liars. Meanwhile, like Billy, Billy... Oh, sorry. I, no, say, no, no, I feel on, like Billy on. the whole time is like, stop shitting on my dreams. Don't tell Basically, me the impossible yeah. not possible. Yeah. I can do it. He's like, he's. there's a, a phrase he keeps using in these documentaries. like, you're talking about problems. We're solution focused. Like, no, no, no. <laughs> Look, you have to... and. You have to come up with a problem before you have a solution, right? So we need to raise it's like, no, no, no. I just want you to think up solutions. And like, Billy, we need to talk about this. Like, no, shut the fuck up. Um, that was his thing. <laughs> Meanwhile, Billy is drumming up interest and gathering as much money as possible to meet the ridiculous claims he's made. Uh, he was making to encourage people to pay tens of thousands of dollars to stay in non-existent villas and luxury glamping accommodation or huge fucking yachts, which is my favorite. Part. I was like, oh yeah, yeah, ten people on a yacht, yeah, that's no problem. Uh, they had an artistic rent. They had a bunch of artistic renderings of the accommodation, uh, and and what it was going to look like. That's a big red flag for me, to be honest. If you're going somewhere, right, and your accommodation is an artistic rendering, never, ever trust it. You trust photos. If someone's drawn a picture of what your room will look like, it doesn't exist. It's right. that simple. You know, it's straight. Can you imagine making a booking on Airbnb and all you met with is a fucking pencil sketch? But yeah. This is what the room looks like. We'll take a fucking picture. You've got a phone, haven't you? Jesus. No. Um, I have no phone or internet, but I'm putting this on Airbnb. But I've got a, yeah, I've got a great drawing <laughs> ability. The same month that the supposed headlining acts uh, for the festival started to leak, the very first tweets, uh, very first tweet was sent out from the account at Fire Fraud, run by venture capitalist Calvin Wells. In Fire Fraud, Wells said that he got so fed up with trying to warn people that he just started posting his findings that proved fire was going to be a disaster and was a scam. A month before festival guests arrived, he tweeted evidence. He basically got in a plane, flew over the fucking site of the festival <laughs> and took a bunch of pictures. Uh, he tweeted evidence that the festival wasn't on a private beach, but in an undeveloped lot next to a sandals resort. Which is so fucking desperate. Just put it in the sandals parking lot. This is yeah, where we'll exactly. have a Yeah, and when the, <laughs> the official map was produced, they like conveniently cut off where the sandals <laughs> resort was supposed to be like, oh, it's an island. No, this is just a portion of an existing island. Okay? Um, and also the festival was happening at a time. Of, like if it had been booked at different times, it probably would have been okay because there'd have been like places for people to stay. The sandals resort would have opened its doors to these people because they'd be like, okay, we've got like 300 spare rooms, whatever it might be. They booked it at a time of year when there was a sailing regatta on and the population of the island where the event was held doubles. And oh, no. these hotel rooms are booked up over a year in advance. So it was they were basically going to be homeless if it didn't work out. And we know what happens. Um, so less than a month before the festival, one of the first articles detailing issues with the festival came out. The Wall Street Journal reported on April the 2nd of 2017 that artists hadn't been paid. VIP guests had uh, didn't have their traveling itineraries flight information and claims that the festival was wooing the wealthy just to make ends meet which it was doing actually things were going so badly that one of the main organizers andy king this is the most shocking thing and actually really horrible as well he's one of the few people to come out of the documentary looking halfway decent 
um, was asked to go down to the local customs office and suck the local customs officer's dick to release the water trucks that had been impounded because they hadn't paid the import fee. Um, and King, this is the quote from Andy King, bless him, it's heartbreaking when he says this in the documentary. Billy McFarlane called and said, Andy, we need you to take one big thing for the team. You're our wonderful gay leader, and we need you to go down. Will you suck dick to fix this water problem? He said that in a phone call to this guy who's been working with for 15 years. And he and this is the sad part. I swear Andy King goes, like, you can tell he's upset. But he's like trying not to break because he's got pride and he's in a documentary and stuff. And he said, I literally drove home, took a shower, drank some mouthwash, got into my car to drive across the island to take one for the team. And I got to the head of customs office fully prepared to suck his dick. And that's so sad that his boss had essentially prostituted him. Thankfully, yeah, yeah, disgusting. Thankfully, the customs official didn't want that. And was just like, look, King, he said to Andy, can you promise me that when this all goes pear-shaped, and he knew it was going to go bad, that he was going to be one of the first people to get paid? He was like, we need to get paid. We are the customs officials for this island. We have a very important job to do. We need to make sure that this office is up and running and that you know shit doesn't get smuggled through and stuff like that. So we need this money for our budget. So thankfully, that didn't have to happen. But Jesus Christ. Um, Thoughts. <laughs> what the f- Jesus man? It's hor- like horrible. I can hear the bro dude type of guy that yeah. he is saying that, and it's still yeah. it's like, my God, man! Like, how do you tell somebody that? Like, never, ah, that's just it, it's insane. It's like, <laughs> and the weird thing is, you watch both documentaries. There are points when you're like. Billy McFarlane should be feeling emotions here. He should be having some sort of an emotional response to this situation or this question or this thing that's happening. And he is a blank-faced crash test dummy of a human being. He has no emotional reaction to anything other than this is what I want. And at that point, you start to think he might actually be a sociopath because he has no feelings, no remorse, no care, no joy. He just has this kind of bland-looking dead-eye smile when he's supposed to be having fun. It doesn't look real. And that's what worries me, actually. Um, At this point, the pressure was starting to get to him, though, because when he was being battered with questions from his employees and people who hadn't been paid, he would disappear for up to an hour at a time, driving insanely high speeds up and down the roads on an all-terrain vehicle. Probably not the best person to be in charge at that point. Also, I'm not he was just anything. hoping to accidentally kill himself. Yeah, I feel like that's a possibility at that point. It's like, please get me out of the responsibility. Or like, have an accident. So he's yeah. like, oh, I've been badly injured. We have to call off the festival, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, now, this is a point I wanted to make. I'm not pointing any fingers, but if you watch the documentary and you look at some of the people making very weird decisions and coming up with some of the stupidest ideas you've ever heard anyone come up with in the in history there's a lot of frantic energy going on they're smiling there's a lot of manic laughing around like really weird decision makings they're all red-faced they're all kind of bloated you make up your own mind what's been going on behind closed doors there um 
people they're all on drugs they're i'm sorry (laughs) they've got a very specific bloat going on (laughs) and i i see signs on there that yeah there's definitely a lot of decisions being made that should not have been had they been in a better frame of mind people bombarded the official website um email address and social media sites with desperate questions only to be met with a wall of silence and we're encouraged to put money on plastic wristbands uh, to make the event cash free as much money as they made from the initial ticket sales and cons because it sold out like that like within like i think three days it was sold out which is incredible really for a, a first time festival that just does not happen especially with the rates they were charging yeah like seven to ten thousand dollars for a fucking glamping tent for christ's sake mm-hmm. uh the second con raised nearly as much money as the first and the bands were essentially useless when you find out what happens later. Uh, the day before the event, there was a massive rainstorm that swept over the island and the venue and drenched the entire site. All the construction work had to stop, and the disaster relief tents that they were using in place of you know the villas and the yachts and the fucking mega mansions that they promised were drenched through, essentially destroyed, and uh, completely soaked through. The day that people were supposed to start arriving at Fire Festival, Blink-182 pulled out of the lineup. In a tweet, the band wrote that they weren't, they weren't confident that the stage and all the stuff they needed to be set up in a way that would make for a good performance was going to happen. And that was just the start of the day. When visitors started arriving on the island for Fire Festival, the first three planes were sent to a neighboring resort and hundreds of people were held at a local bar. I mean, literally held. They were not giving any information on how to get to the site, where it was. Were held at a bar for six hours and plied with booze nonstop while Billy and his motley crew, uh, out of con artists and overworked employees, scrambled to make it look less like Ground Zero and more like uh, Escobar's private island. How Um, drunk did he think he was going to get them that they were going to fall for that shit? Kill them at that point. Six hours (laughs) drinking. And there's like footage of that, like people walking around with bottles and just pouring liquor into oh people's mouths. They still got on a bus. They still got on these fucking yellow school buses, right? Which immediately should have been like, hang on, yellow school buses? That that doesn't exactly ring of luxury. Right. Uh, when visitors finally arrived on the yellow school buses, and the sc- uh, there's another thing, the school dr- the bus drivers were like, oh, it's been fucking disastrous. This oh, this week has been a complete nightmare. <laughs> While they're driving them to the site, oh, you're gonna be fucking, oh, you're gonna hate this. Uh, when visitors <laughs> finally arrived on the buses, some of the people started panicking, and more than one person can be heard on the bus saying, "Turn this fucking bus around." Other yeah. visitors arrived at the site to find the tents, plastic wrapped mattresses, and kiosks had been left unattended, with crates of alcohol left out in the sun to ply them with more booze. Chaos ensued as visitors discovered a lack of running water, in addition to the shoddy accommodation. Billy McFarlane stood on a makeshift stage, which is basically a crate, uh, to (laughs) answer questions. And then it happened. The infamous cheese sandwich. Someone took a picture of the luxury food that they'd been promised. And it was a takeaway container with two pieces of bread, a bit of lettuce, and a slice of American cheese. And that was was your fucking $60 meal for that. Dude, I'm picturing they got this crate of booze. The cheese sandwich, they're like, grab a bottle, yeah. take one of them mattresses, yes. we're going to need you to start building shit, 
That's it. That's literally what happened. There, there's a point at which they, they're like, oh, we've got security like place for your, your luggage. The luggage arrive arrives on like these two massive trucks, right? And they're just mm-hmm. throwing it out onto the sands. Like, yeah, you pick out one of these black bags is probably yours, just pick it out. And then they've got that like we've got security for all your belongings. It's just these massive lockers. The tiny little lockers, not like in like high school in America where you've got lockers that it's like a PO box size fucking <laughs> locker. It's like an eight by eight. Here you and go. No one's been assigned anything. They've got the keys in them already. They're easy to break into. And essentially, when the sun started going down and people didn't have water and they've been drinking booze all day, it became Lord of the Flies. It was just a fucking free for all. Um, by the wee hours of the morning, Fire Festival was officially cancelled after assessing the situation this morning and looking at the best options for our guests. We cannot move forward as we hope we could have. Uh, the official fire account tweeted out at the time. People coming in on later flights had uh, had them cancelled and empty planes were sent to the Bahamas to take people home. The international airport on the island was so overrun with confused people that they actually got confused themselves, like it seems that the confusion spread, and they locked these hundreds of people inside the fucking tiny-ass airport while (laughs) they were trying to figure out what to do with them. And, of course, people started to panic. It was getting hot in there. So they eventually... um, Release the chains because they chained them into the fucking airport. <laughs> so that they were a... being invaded. Basically, yeah, they were like, "Shit, we've got to keep these people here." Uh, that yeah. was a weird decision, uh, by the way. And also, at this point, Billy McFarlane is nowhere to be found. No one can find him. He's yeah. done a Costa Concordia captain and just fucked off as quickly as he could. Really, <laughs> uh, the Bahamian Ministry of Tourism issued a statement blaming the organizers themselves. No shit claiming they were lied to about safety precautions taken. Ja Rule denied any fault in the festival's demise, insisting on Twitter that it was not a scam and that he had no idea how everything went so wrong. Ja Rule uh, immediately started playing the victim in this, despite the fact he absolutely got paid. And none of the people, the dozens of bar owners or homeowners or workmen or security staff or talent, none of these people got paid. A, a penny they were owed tens of thousands of dollars there was one bar owner this poor woman had to dip into her own life savings she lost fifty thousand dollars when she I was f- feeding people booze constantly see and really i feel terrible. like people um like the influencer that got two hundred fifty thousand and ja Rule who got yeah. his money i feel like they should have given that money back to help Fuck pay for some yes. of them people thankfully um there was a bunch of Kickstarters were started up by people after the thing. The bar owner got her money back and then some, and some of the workers got paid as well. Nowhere near as much as they should have done, but at least they got some remuneration because, you know, this was a big deal for the island. If this had worked, then a lot of the, the lives of the people working there and living on the island would have been significantly better. And it didn't, it actually did the opposite. It, financially crippled them basically and things got so bad for the organizers that they essentially had to be smuggled off the island because gangs had been formed and people were being hunted down so that these gangs of people could get paid andy king lay down in the back of a jeep and covered himself with a tarp in an effort to hide from an angry mob of locals this poor guy 
has at one point thought he was going to have to prostitute himself, and now he's hiding from people who are trying to hunt him down and like extort money out of him at this point. I, f- I feel bad for laughing, but Jesus Christ. It's you're, crazy. Your cartoon hiding in the back of a truck because people I are know. coming to get you. You almost can't believe that's real. It's, it's like, I, I kind of think so of people horrible. fleeing war zones at this point. It's basically what it is. Um, May 2017 is when all the repercussions came pouring in for Ja Rule and Billy McFarlane, although more so for McFarlane. They were both banned from visiting the Bahamas for life. Fuck you, Ja Rule. (laughs) (laughs) He's never going back to the Bahamas. I think that's a pretty good punishment, actually. I'd be like, oh, shit. I would have really liked to have gone there again. I, I can't go. That's really sad. Uh, numerous <laughs> lawsuits named both McFarlane and Ja Rule and included claims of illegal wire transfers, tricking people to come by paying influencers to market the festival, general negligence, and a violation of consumer protection law. McFarlane was arrested a few months after the event taken by the FBI agents for wire fraud that could have ended up costing him 20 years in prison. Uh, then set. Uh, he, then he was set out on bail. At the time, he was also being sued for a hundred million dollars in a class Ooh. action lawsuit. Fuck me. That's, um, the court the documents actually included the line that it was closer to the Hunger Games or Lord of the Flies than Coachella. So that's fucking sounded awesome. like it. The courts agree with me. Uh, <laughs> the Hulu documentary. Uh, Seth Crosno says that hit on the Hulu documentary. Uh, Seth Crosno says that he and others were who attended the festival and who obviously had all their information stored in emails because you know, you've got to sign up for it, uh, started receiving suspicious emails from a company called NYC VIP Access from someone named Frank Tribble. The emails offered tickets to big events like the Victoria's Secrets Fashion Show, the 2018 Masters, Burning Man, and tickets to the Met Gala, an event that does not have tickets available for purchase. (laughs) (laughs) It turns out that the NYC VIP Access, all capitals, was another McFarlane venture, and according to BuzzFeed News, he allegedly sold over $100,000 worth of fraudulent tickets via the email scam. It didn't help that his business was launched while he was literally out on bail for wire fraud. He was... He'd... When he was released on bail, he gave his address as his parents' place in New New Jersey. He was living in a penthouse hotel room that he couldn't afford to pay the bills for and was eventually kicked out of. The whole time he's doing this ticket thing, he's invited a videographer along to film everything. And it's all on camera. He's as guilty as fucking sin. And the Frank Tribble dude... They're on camera the whole time going, hey, I'm Frank and shit like that. It is the most <laughs> staggeringly stupid thing I've ever seen anyone do in, in my life. In October. He was, he was sorry, trying to fake it until he made it. He was I videoing mean, his stuff, doing his own MTV cribs and shit. <laughs> this is my hotel that I can't Here's pay my for. stolen penthouse hotel room. Let me show you how to commit federal fraud. Holy shit. In October, McFarlane was sentenced to six years in prison, a term he's currently still serving, for charges involving the Fire Festival, NYP VIP access, and defrauding festival goers and investors. McFarlane pled guilty to two counts of wire fraud and did so twice again for the fake tickets. He also um, had to admit, because he claimed that Fire Media right which was actually doing well it was employing loads of people doing a bit of business here and there he said it was worth uh tens of millions of dollars 
or he'd made tens of millions of dollars off it. That's how he got the seed money for the festival, blah, blah, blah. He'd made 60 grand oh, off man. this fucking company. So he basically paid himself a decent wage. You know, yeah. not like CEO money, not millions of dollars, not keeping essentially a cut of the profits for himself because he owns shares in the company. 60 grand in like that's, a year and a half. That's, that's depressing. That's good. <laughs> that is not good at all. Very expensive offices in New York and all these other people were getting paid. And one day he held a meeting where he was just like, right, here's the deal. I can't afford to pay you, but you can carry on working if you want. And someone in the call says, so what you're saying is you're not firing us so that we can claim unemployment benefits. You're saying that you can't pay us. And he was like, I don't know what to tell you. So let's go back. <laughs> Um, in October, yeah, I've covered the, the fake ticket thing. Uh, as Refinery29 has reported, dozens of lawsuits are still awaiting him as well. In April 2020, during the COVID pandemic, McFarlane requested compassionate release from the Federal Correction Institution, uh, institution Elkton in Lisbon, Ohio, to avoid contracting uh, COVID-19 with the reasoning that as an asthmatic, he was especially vulnerable to the virus. I think there's a lot of asthmatics out there. Really? Uh, I'm asthmatic. I think like half the people in my generation are slightly asthmatic, you know? Yeah, so, possibly. Um, yeah. There's a lot of people that claim to be asthmatic that are mm. not though. I mean, like in instances where perhaps they want to get out of prison. For, for fucking sure. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, his request was denied thankfully, that same month. As of 2020, McFarlane was housed in the Milan Federal Correction Institution in Milan, Michigan, under the federal inmate registration number, I'm going to say this now, 91186-054, with a, a scheduled release date of August the 30th, 2023. So a year and a bit away yet. Um, in July 2020, it was reported that McFarlane had tested positive for COVID-19 at the facility but survived with minimal uh, repercussions. Well, McFarlane's lawyer... <laughs> it, it keeps going, though, this guy. McFarlane's lawyer pleaded to a U.S. district court judge that he be uh, that his pre-existing condition made him particularly vulnerable to catching, uh, suffering from severe... Uh, no, I've already covered this. Forget it. Uh, yeah. Mr. McFarlane is no risk to the community nor a threat to the public safety, his lawyer argued, to try and get him out of prison. The crime to which he pled guilty for was uh, a non-violent financial crime of wire fraud because no one ever got hurt from financial crimes, right? So no. he's no menace to the public. That's such... Given that he was released on like bail and immediately committed another fraud, kind of means that you shouldn't trust this guy on early release. Feels Sorry. like he might still be a threat to the public. Uh, yeah. He actually is. <laughs> we'll get to that now. In October 2020, he was placed in solitary confinement after participating in a new podcast about his crimes that was released that week. Billy uh, Kay, uh, can be heard discussing his various hijinks and their aftermath in detail from a prison phone on a show titled Dumpster Fire, which <laughs> premiered with a Y, uh, which premiered on Tuesday uh, around October 2020. Um. According to Mr. McFarlane's lawyer, he was being held in 23 hours a day solitary confinement after a trailer for the podcast was released online and may remain there for 90 days or more, pending on unspecified investigation by the Federal Bureau of Prisons. Uh, his, his cellmate was also in there because his cellmate, you can be heard in the background of the conversation going like, yeah, Billy's a really good cellmate. Solitary for both of you. 
Um, we believe the investigation stems from his participation in the podcast and the photographs that were taken and utilized in the trailer, which were all properly taken, said his lawyer, Jason Russo. We don't believe he's violated any rule or regulation and there can't possibly be anything else. He's been a model prisoner there, says his lawyer, Jason Russo. The prison authorities replied with that he'd previously been placed in solitary at a different facility for possessing a flash drive in prison. Okay. So not model prisoner. I feel like they're saying he didn't do anything wrong. However, there has to be some sort of fucking rule that says you can't have a podcast from prison. I'm pretty certain. And I, 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 it's different in this country. There's a rule in this country that says you can't profit from your crimes while you're in prison, right? So you can't release a biography while you're in prison. You can't... Uh, anyway, you can profit from your crimes while you're in prison. You can't do... Once you get out uh, and you want to... Like, Jeffrey Archer wrote a whole book about his time in prison and made a shitload of money because his books are terrible and everyone buys them for some fucking reason. Uh, but I don't know if that's the same in the States. I feel like it should be. I, uh, I feel like it's I mean, a good... <clears throat> think about this. Charles Manson was in prison for a long time. That's Imagine true. that son of a bitch had a podcast. Like, <laughs> I know. Um, I feel like that could be dangerous. That's true. And um, I feel, didn't Charles Bronson do art? Uh, no, I'm talking Charles Bronson. I didn't Charles Manson do art? Yeah. As well? And they Did have like pen pals and shit. Yeah. But, I mean, if you're having a podcast, I can sit here and look directly yeah. into the camera and talk into the mic and tell yeah. somebody to do something. Like literally exactly. carry out gang orders if I wanted to. Essentially, yeah. And if it's coded, you know, in a specific way, then that's that's a whole different thing. But yeah, he's definitely, you know, like Charles Bronson. Uh, I mentioned his name just briefly just now by accident, but actually he sold art while he was in prison because he had notoriety. And after the film Bronson came out, you know, he was a big deal. So he started painting. His art's kind of interesting. Sold it for thousands of pounds. Kind of gave it to support his wife and you know, kept a bit of money for himself. That's fine. I don't have a problem with that. He's not profiting from his crimes. He's just right. doing work that's being sold in the public domain. That's fine. I have no issue with that at all. This dude is directly involved in a podcast that is potentially going to earn money and maybe he'll get a cut of it. And we know he definitely got a cut of the money from the um, the documentaries because Hulu had to admit that they paid him a lot of money, probably more than he earned at his fucking fire company. So... Yeah, but not that's more that he's still and enjoyed. Yes, partying on yacht. <laughs> that <laughs> should be sent to people in the island that he conned. So that's the story of um, Billy McFarland, um, fraudster. Uh, <laughs> so, what do you make of Mr. Fire himself, Billy McFarland? Uh, oh, also, one more thing while you're clearing your throat. There's another thing I was reading. There's a documentary out now, or documentary. It's a, a <laughs> docudrama. Uh, so I'll let you. I'll let you get you. you okay. I swallowed, or I breathed water. <laughs> I'll, I'll explain, uh, just so you can catch your breath again as well. Uh, there was a thing that I was checking up on. There's a, docu uh, a docudrama um, on Netflix right now called Inventing Anna, about Anna Sorkin, or Anna, whatever she called herself. Anna, I can't remember. Or Anna she Russo. She came over and was like an heiress. Yeah, she pretended to be like a German socialite or a, a Russian socialite and, and con people out of millions of money. She stayed in Billy McFarlane's penthouse oh. for a while. Yeah. So they were fraudstering together. Yeah. 
and All they're right. both so- sociopaths from what I can tell. Oh, yeah. Um, so, yeah, what do you think of Billy McFarlane and his antics? Well, I I feel really bad. <coughs> Good grief. In general. <laughs> um, well, I, you ever breathe water in? Yeah, like, all I the time. I was taking a I'm drink trying to... So clumsy as fuck. Uh, trying to clear my throat with a, like a quick drink, throw a splash on there, and then I almost yeah. killed myself. So, um, <laughs> Billy McFarland sucks. That's what I yeah, think. Basically, um, yeah. What he did to Annie King is it's, that's horrible. That that's shit. That's like the worst thing about the whole story. And I feel bad that people got taken advantage of, but yeah, early on, everybody Very was nice. saying, "Don't fall for that shit." So, yeah. And the worst part is the employees that worked at the company, they were aware of all of this. Like they saw it happening. They saw they saw stuff going sideways. They just didn't know the money situation. So like they're following orders, but there's maybe only like Ja Rule, probably, potentially. And like a couple of other people who were fully aware of the situation and they knew everything. They're fully complicit. But all of these poor people that worked for Fire Media. They were taken into this whole thing. They were working like two jobs. They were working for Fire Media and the festival, and they could see that shit was going sideways, and they couldn't do anything about it. So, and then he was like, "Yeah, not going to pay you anymore. Sorry." Yeah. So they can't even get an employment benefits. The assholes. That's yeah. That's everything about this guy sucks really bad, yeah. and the sociopath part of it, um, it ruins me. But I mean, he. He didn't really kill anybody. He just no. did massive financial damage to an entire island community. Yeah, that's that's so. the worst part. I do hope they recover because, I mean, they've got a Sandals resort there. There'll be masses of tourism, possibly even more tourism as a result of these documentaries and, and the notoriety. Hopefully people will be like, oh, actually, you know what? The parts of the island that we did see in the documentary look quite nice. Let's go there. You know, hopefully right. that, in a sense, has raised the the kind of profile of the island. But some of these people have lost like everything. It's really well, fucking sad. Yeah. And and for that reason, um, yeah. I, yeah, I think I'm going to go slightly lower than the, my pillow feller. Sure. Uh, yeah. On this yeah. one and go with an 80 even just because nobody yeah. died. Sure. Know, the whole, yeah. Did you die? <laughs> <laughs> so. Yeah. Um, and actually, that's funny because that's what Jar Rule said in one of his tweets where he's like, nobody, nobody died. Did. he's like nobody died why is everybody so upset you're not supposed to actually use that argument dude no he should have stayed off twitter that fucking idiot did so much damage to himself by going look i didn't know anything if he just come out with a statement that said look i i went along with this guy you know i maybe should have seen some more signs but i promise you i didn't know the financial things like people would have been like oh you know maybe that was the case but he just kept on going on and on like nobody died oh all these rich people got their money taken off them oh big fucking deal i'm so sad like he's basically persona non grata now after this whole thing yeah so but it's just what was he gonna do (laughs) i tell you the one person who had a really big laugh out of it was 50 cent it was just railing on him the whole time. He's like, I told you this guy was an idiot. Uh, so fucking funny. So yeah, that's that's Billy McFarlane. I, I will happily take 80 for Billy because again, like you say, like nobody died. It's just like it's a con of such epic proportions that it's it's either deliberate on his part that he knew he wasn't gonna pull it off and he thought he was gonna somehow come out of it with a shitload of money because there's the no way he thought it was real. I know, I know. Or like He's so deluded, he thinks he's some sort of fucking genius, and it, he can just say stuff, and people will do things, and it'll just happen, but that's, that's not how the world works. 
And that's it. That's our holiday special slash 10,000 plays special edition episode of History's Greatest Idiots. Thank you so much, everybody, for sticking with us all the way through all the fantastic episodes we've had. We've had about 33 or 34 now. Uh, we've got over 40 plus hours of content. And if you want to follow us on uh, Instagram or Twitter, the links are at History's Greatest Idiots on Instagram and at Greatest Idiots on Twitter. We have a Patreon page, which is www.patreon.com slash history's greatest idiots if you'd like to support us officially and we will see you again in a couple of weeks when we'll be back live on uh, twitch and youtube and uh, twitter as well so you can view us there at the time uh, i think you set reminders for those things it'll tell you when we go live and yeah we will be uh, back soon with more amazing original content thank you so much for supporting the podcast we love you all very much and uh, just we'll see you all again in the very near future take care now Bye.